This is the Tame Aperture Podcast. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. <laughs> Hello, Hal, do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the Team Aperture Podcast, where we talk all things movies from first-time directors, indie films, art house, and much, much more. Today on the podcast, we talk the American horror classic from 1960 from legendary filmmaker Alfred Hitchcock. Movie that has spawned multiple sequels and spin offs, but nothing that quite measures up to its predecessor. We're talking Psycho, starring Anthony Perkins, Janet Lee, and Vera Miles. After embezzling $40,000 from her employer's client, Marion Crane leaves the desert city of Phoenix for the outskirts of Bakersfield near the fictional town of Fairville to meet her lover and live a life happily ever after. But after making the deadly mistake of stopping at the isolated and strange Bates Motel, she meets her fate and Norman's mother. I'm Gabe Bienendahl, filmmaker, film instructor, and movie enthusiast, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and editor, horror movie fanatic, Alan Martindale. Alan, I got to use horror movie this time again. Yeah, dude. Uh, Not just movie fanatic. It, it's, right? it's true, though. It's, this, is, um, this is the first slasher film. And the fact that it, it, it comes from the master, like the guy, the, I mean, he's, he's the filmmaker, as far as I'm concerned with Hitchcock, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's weird. Uh, I've always kind of had a fascination with Hitchcock. Like when I was a kid, before I really embraced, uh, before I realized how much I, I would eventually love horror, I was kind of intrigued. And a little frightened of watching anything by Hitchcock because I always thought he was a horror director, and he really it wasn't. He was he was a suspense guy, and that's it. Yeah. Uh, but I think this film kind of threw him into that world and kind of uh, made him a little bit more mysterious. Yeah, it's definitely a changeup. You know, last time we were talking about the Cohen brothers, and I was alluding to the fact of how crafty they were in their filmmaking process. And I think you can uh, definitely put Hitchcock into that category as well in terms of craftiness. Um, although we'll get into a little bit of that and talk about some of the things that maybe don't uh, uh, hold on to their, uh, they don't carry the, quite the same weight 60 years later. Um, but nonetheless, this was your pick uh, for Psycho, as I would make sense because you, like we, like we said, you, you're a horror movie fanatic and, and we might not even, I want to know, do you categorize this as a horror film? I do. I do. Uh, because the few sequences that are horror are so startling and they kind of define a genre. They, 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 they are the spark that lit the fuse to what would become obviously like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween. There are a lot of ties to Halloween. Um, and, and all, and everything that would become horror. So I'm not sure it, it's a horror movie. It's, I don't, I don't know what it is to be honest with you, but I would, I would categor, categorize it as that. I would put it in there 
but I can understand how some people might not. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I, I, you know, it's interesting because it has such uh, a pioneering spirit about it in terms of, of what they were doing, especially if you think about it, because this comes out in 1960. So they're filming in the late 50s, 59, sometime in that period. This was unheard of, the way that they were doing things and putting it together. Like they didn't have this kind of suspenseful thriller back in 59. It didn't really exist. No, I can't think of anything. No, I mean, this this is really and there's a great documentary that I, I was that I've seen before and I was kind of watching it again in preparation uh, for this podcast It's called 78 slash 52. It's it's about the shower scene, but it's also about kind of putting putting Psycho together. And also, obviously, uh, the movie Hitchcock with uh, Anthony Hopkins starring as as Hitch. It's, right. it's that's really good because that's just about Psycho, and it's it's those are really good films. Again, you know Hitchcock. I'm not sure it's a biopic, so you never know how much of a biopic is is factual and how much is not. But this documentary is really good. I highly recommend everyone go uh, go check that out. It's on Hulu. I know that, but it's uh, everything about this movie. It, I mean, he put up his own money for this. It, it's really weird. He risked a lot to get this movie made. And for such a movie that I think if if this was made by any other director, I think people would look at it as being trash, at least at that time, like tawdry and very kind of trashy and not real. You know, certainly not an A, a movie, I think. Yeah. Was it? It was rated R. Mm hmm. I mean, it had Which everything we- like it had. It had sex. It had uh, really risque shots. Uh, in the shower, obviously, it had crazy violence. It had a million twists. This did things that no other movie had done before. They never even they had never shown a toilet flushing on camera before. Yeah, and this is the it's first too, movie. It's too disgusting. Yeah, it's exactly. Too disgusting. Exactly, and this is the first movie that showed a camera flushing on camera or a toilet flushing on camera. And and now I think of that and I go, well, we don't need to see a toilet flushing. Right, right. Unless it's the toilet in I Saw the Devil with the poop pill. <laughs> I wish that would have been flushed first. They could have flushed that yeah, first exactly. before showing the shot. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we digress from flushing toilets. <laughs> but yeah, it definitely has that pioneering spirit to it. Um, I'd categorize it as a mystery thriller. I there there are scenes, like you said, that I mean that and we'll get into those scenes which everybody and their dog has dissected uh, particularly the shower scene for what it was and what they were able to put together even through you know you consider all the forms of censorship that were going on in the 60s you couldn't just show a nude woman in the shower and so his that that falls back onto the craftiness right of his ability to put together and construct a scene in a mosaic form and really display the the vibe and the feeling of the scene without having to show the whole thing because i think today if you were filming that shower scene you just show the woman in the shower nude right and then it would just be a slasher piece and blood and gore everywhere there's almost something because this is not ultra violent of course but it's like even the blood is minimal right yep it's very minimal it's when he goes back in and starts cleaning the tub norman goes back in and starts cleaning the tub it's it's like droplets is what it feels like yeah it, in it, our, he mops it up and then it's done yeah 
So, you know, there's, there's a lot of, it, I always found it funny uh, that it was rated R, but nonetheless, let's start at the beginning. I'm going to have you kind of walk me through some of the stuff since this was your, your pick. And then I have some things and questions I want to ask you and go through, but it basically starts out. First off, they start out in Phoenix, Arizona. Interesting, interesting setting why, too. Why Phoenix? Uh, I, that's, I don't know. I don't know if that's just what was in the book. Uh, cause this was based on the novel. I, I was, I'm not sure if that's what it was or, or why, why Phoenix, but, um, that's where they start out. It's uh, a December day. So obviously in Phoenix, it's very warm, uh, very hot actually. And, uh, that opening shot I think is really, uh, for the time, especially really ambitious because it's, you feel like you're, you're almost a bird or a fly or, or, or an insect or something flying through the cityscape of Phoenix. And it kind of, and the camera goes into the window of a hotel. And obviously there's some, there's some editing tricks in there and some camera tricks to make, but it does make it seem as if it's one shot gliding through the city, going right into the hotel room and kind of being a, somewhat of a voyeur, a voyeur of, of these, this couple who had just got done uh, having sex. And it's, it's really tawdry. And to start out the movie like that, I mean, this is, uh, Hitchcock just came off North by Northwest. And if you've ever seen that, I mean, it's okay. It's, it's fine, but I quite enjoy it, but I think it's more nostalgic than anything. I probably watched it with my parents growing up. My mom actually loves Hitchcock movies. So we, we watched them all the time. Um, but yeah, it's, it's long and it's a little, it's a little overdrawn at spit points. Right. But the censors, the censors were even trying to shut him down, showing uh, kind of the sex scenes. Like they wouldn't obviously let him show that. So he had to use some visual metaphors, a, ta- a train going through a tunnel and, and whatnot. I mean, it's very famous if you go back yeah. and watch that movie. So uh, there's a lot of subtext there. But for this one, he just goes right into it, man. Just bam. And actually, let me back up a little bit because even the opening credits for this movie make me so happy because it's that it's that Saul Bass design and it's uh on top of the 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 psycho theme not the not the the strings but it's the do 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 like it's really intense it hits you right out the gate and immediately I'm like oh yes I like it's so famous now and I wish that I could go back and watch this film before it became so famous. I wish I could watch it with fresh eyes because even before, and I'm sure you're the same way, even before you ever saw this movie, you know the twist, you know the shower scene, you know all the famous things. I wish I could right. go back and, and not know a thing about it and see how it affected me then. Yeah, that was one of my questions that we'll get to. I wanted to ask you, it kind of alludes to that because I, I wonder what you would feel and what the impressions would be if you hadn't had any kind of... Uh, jaded approach to the film because like you said we've heard everything but that's all bass intro also i love the title of that which is pictorial consultant yeah um, well he he visually designed the entire shower scene like he was beautiful. he he uh he drew up the the storyboards for it and he was the designer of that entire scene but have we ever i i can't recall ever seeing maybe it's just not knowing enough about the older films pictorial consultant I've never heard of as it. A, never heard as of it. A, as a title. One thing, too, right before the opener, I got to say, can Universal stop doubling down on their banners that come up? <laughs> Why do we need to know two times that you 
<laughs> I, did you notice that? I did notice that. I thought, honestly, I thought uh, the stream was glitching. And I thought that maybe the copy I was watching was bad. <laughs> the only reason I knew the difference was because the first one was the newer version of the Universal right, logo. Right. And the second one was like a 70s or 80s version. And you're like, okay, let's just go far, as far back as the 1930s. Right. Just keep showing right. them all. Might as well. <laughs> why, why? Gotta get that but branding. <laughs> and then it, it's, I think they're just trying to compensate because it shows two banners. And then right after that, it says a Paramount picture release. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, Universal owns the rights to Psycho, but it was Hitchcock's last picture with uh, Paramount. It goes into the Bernard Herrmann musical score. What's your thoughts on this musical score to accompany the graphic design at the beginning? It's it's perfect. It's it's perfect for the for the design. Uh, it, it's it just it fits it so well, and it's now it's so iconic. But I, I think especially like let's say you are just a regular Joe Blow going to the movies. Uh, you like the suspense, like maybe you liked uh, Rear Window, maybe you liked um, North by Northwest and some of these other movies. It's intense for what Hitchcock has done in the past. It's intense and it hits you hard and it hits you right out of the gate. And so I think to me, I haven't seen all of Hitchcock's films, but from what I've seen, it seems a little out of character from what came before it. So I think already you're unnerved. To me, I love, I mean, it's, it's a horror anthem as far as I'm concerned. I, I, it, it gets me excited. He kind of has always had those symphonic musical scores in almost all of his films. This one I wrote in my notes was the opening music is uh, annoyingly beautiful. That's a very good way to put it. <laughs> it just felt, I kind of wanted it to be over. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. But at the same time, there's a there's kind of a mystique and majesty to it. I think it, it, it so musically it's great, right? But I was like, okay, I just I'm, I'm done with the the high skills and the, it's very the in your face. It's, it's very yeah. pay attention, be uncomfortable. But like you said, we start out, you know, start out in Arizona. It is a great shot. It's that aerial shot combined with in. I like what you alluded to, which is so true. I think with pieces throughout the movie, which is. Uh, senses of, of voyeurism, right? Just throughout. And, and then, sub, you know, Hitchcock to me is a master. Um, and, and some of this in Psycho, he's a little, like you said, he's a little bit more in your face and on the nose, but he, he's always been a master of subtlety and subtext. Yeah. You know? Um, and so, like, I think as a subtext craftsman, I love what he does because... Um, as you get into that scene in the hotel, uh, you have that voyeuristic approach somewhere you're not supposed to be, but you're listening in. Yes. Uh, and I even think, and man, <laughs> I don't know if this is just a sign of the times or if this movie is just very on the nose, but they don't, they don't leave any doubt on the exposition. I mean, they, it's very over the top. Let me tell you what's been happening in this story so far. Yeah, like it's and I don't know. Maybe that is just how it was back then, but it's just there's no subtlety whatsoever. No, they don't hold back. No, not and, at all. Uh, basically, it's this it's this uh, relationship between uh, the, the man and woman who've been seeing each other for some time, uh, Sam and Marion. And right? I do want to say Sam Loomis, uh, John Carpenter took that name and very famously named Michael Myers psychiatrist sam loomis after this character 
Oh yeah. I did not uh, see that tie and that's cool. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So I have a hard time hearing that name and not thinking of, of, of Dr. Sam Loomis from Halloween. That's great. I didn't even, I, now that you say that I go, of course. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I wasn't put, I, I mean, to be honest, I wasn't looking at his, is it is at his real name or I mean, sorry, his character name in that. That's great. I love that. Yeah. yeah um, very cool. Little tie-ins like that, little things like that. Played by, and of course, Sam Loomis played by the late, great Donald Pleasance in Halloween, Sam Loomis in Halloween. It yes. was just, he's yes. fantastic. He's the best part he's, of those movies. He's great. Yeah. He's fantastic. Um, but John Gavin plays Sam Loomis here. He basically has a uh, relationship with Marion and he's basically waiting for divorce from his current wife. Is that yeah. what it was? Cause I, I have a hard time cause I understand. Or, or no, they're already divorced. But so here's what I don't quite, I don't quite get. Obviously the relationship is, has been secret. So obviously maybe they've been, um, maybe they've been seeing each other before he was divorced, but I don't understand why it's still a secret, why they still have to meet in, in, sleazy motels when he comes into town because he mentions his wife is is god knows where and he's paying her alimony so i assume they're divorced i don't i don't understand what's so secret about it yeah i don't i my my thought is because it's it i recall them already being divorced based on the dialogue that transpires right so they're already divorced and he's sending her alimony so i don't know yeah, I don't, I'm with you. I don't. What, what are we doing? Why the Why the fuck are we being in secret in the hotel? Right, right. Hey, and I, this I, is the new the new name of this podcast for this episode is Breaking Hitchcock. <laughs> well, there's a lot we can break. That's that's for sure. Um, but I and I mean breaking is like you fucked up in a plot point right here. Oh, for sure. For I'm I, just kidding. <laughs> there are a couple things that I think you, we could do that as well. But Marion, uh, his his girlfriend, his I don't know his his side piece i don't know what you want to call her because this is a secret uh she she wants to get married and he he doesn't want to and i what i gather from the dialogue is that he doesn't feel like he can give her a good enough life and that's why he doesn't want to get married yeah because he works I mean, in a hardware store acted like you can well there's no if you come live with me there's nowhere to stay you can stay in the back of the hardware store right right can't do, yeah so he's he's probably a little bit uh, he feels a little, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, maybe inadequate unable to provide yeah. Yeah, inadequate. And, and that's, that's an important plot point saying that she, you know, she would like to, this is why when the money comes up later, she takes the opportunity to, to take it and run. Yeah. And he also mentions too, concerning the money. I mean, he obviously has alimony. He, he owns that little hardware store, but he's got a lot of debt and he mentions that to her directly. So like you said, in just a minute here in the next few scenes, we're going to see how that plot point comes into play. Uh, and going into this movie, I was a little worried because it, it's been a couple years since I've seen it. And uh, I, I was worried that it was going to fall into that trope where, where you go back and when you, when you see these old movies and they don't really hold up because they're kind of boring. And I was not, it wasn't until later that I was kind of getting, it was getting a little slow for me. This first part though, I was actually on board and I enjoyed it way more than I thought. Um, yeah, I was on board too, but I, it, it, the first 30, I mean, we don't meet Norman Bates until the, after thir almost 30 minutes of the, of the film. I think it's even lot longer than that. I think I want to say it's like I, I 40 timed minutes. It. It's a 30, it's Is it 30, 30 minutes? minutes? Okay. And, and, and so if you're hanging on, that's good. Cause I think we'll get into this. I think his character is very intriguing, of course. 
And his performance is, is really interesting. We'll break that down. Yeah. And yeah, Perkins. that first 30 minutes for me, like it, it was just kind of, it was good. I mean, I was, I was, I was in, I think the biggest, the funniest part to me though, I got to say <laughs> was when, so Marion and, and, uh, Sam, uh, separate, she goes back to work. She works for some kind of banker or investor financier guy. And they, she goes back to work with Caroline. Caroline is, is her colleague. And she's, and, and, uh, Marion's like, Hey, I got a real thrive, just a headache. My favorite part was when Caroline offers her tr- tranquilizers. Caroline, her character, I think is hilarious. She, I think she's, she's like, the perfect comic relief throughout the whole. Alan, the line where and I wrote it down. <laughs> she says to Marion, because Marion's like, man, I got a headache. And she says, here, try these. Teddy was furious when he found out I'd taken tranquilizers. <laughs> it was on the wedding night, too. That was the thing. Like, I was like, yeah, that's right. Because her, that's her right. mom's doctor gave it to her yeah, the when they got doctor. married. Yeah, exactly. What What are we doing in 1960 <laughs> <taking> tranquilizers? <laughs> Her character was funny. And then I also thought it was funny when, so right after that, um, the, uh, I don't remember his name, but uh, her boss comes in with a potential client who's got money. And this dude, right? I love this guy. Uh, and he's come in, he's kind of like almost, I know they're in Phoenix, but he feels like a Texan oil tycoon. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's yep. the, the kind of approach. And he starts hitting on Marion. And telling her how much cash he has and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't carry, uh, if he can only carry as much cash as he's willing to lose or something like that. And he's got 40 grand in his envelope and this guy's great. Oh, he, and the way he flirts with her is, is hilarious too. Because, and I can't, I wish I could remember the line. I, I should have written it down. But when he says something in the effect of, well, you, you can't buy happiness, but you can sure, you can buy it, you can buy unhappiness away. And then he looks at her and he's like, are you unhappy? <laughs> like totally <laughs> propositioning her, totally scummy. And it's, it's, it's just hilarious. And then he tells her, I'm buying my daughter a house for a wedding present. I'm, I'm buying her a house. And so not only is he like making a subtle proposition, but he's also saying, I'm really, really rich. Right, right, exactly. So here's the thing. If Marion was uh, a skis, this whole story could end right here. Absolutely. You know what? That's a very good point. Because she could just go, oh, this old, if she, she could play this guy, get 40 grand, drop him like a fly and go back to live with Sam. Would have been much easier. End of story. Hitchcock, breaking Hitchcock, ladies and gentlemen. There you go, man. She, she doesn't get killed. Norman Bates n- never gets caught. He's still on the loose to this day. Um, he's, just, he's still up there just playing with mom. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but I, I love the and it's it's stuff like this. It scenes like this at the in the first act that kept me going because it, they are they're surprisingly funny. I, yeah, I don't are. I haven't watched a lot of movies from 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 this era, but the ones I've seen, I don't see humor like this. Like it feel it feels like it's way ahead of its time. It's also done a lot. I don't know how to say this. It, I don't mean clean as in the content. I just mean. The, once again, the craftsmanship of it. Sometimes you watch those 50s and 60s films and there's an over-the-top 
dr- melodramatic. And there's plenty vibe. of that. There's plenty of that in this movie there too. There is that but in here, but I think scenes, in these in these interactions, they actually feel pretty normal. They don't feel over the top. They just feel j- kind of authentic. Yes, if it, it actually feels good. It keeps you entertained. It's good. And of course, uh, Hitchcock has got his his famous cameos that he is famous for having and. In this movie, he wanted to get it out of the way quickly because he wanted people to focus on the story and everything that's happening, and he didn't want people wasting time looking for him. So yeah. he he does, yeah. and I can't remember if, if it's bef- before she comes into the office or when she leaves the office, but he... he it, it's right as she's coming into the office for the first time. He's outside the window. Right, right. As a pedestrian on the street. And I so everybody think, look for your Hitchcock cameo. Exactly. Psycho. Well, I, I think it's important that we we kind of discuss a little bit. And everyone's familiar with Hitchcock. I mean, he's he he's a larger than yeah, we're beating figure. a dead horse here. I know. Absolutely. And I'm going to I mean, geek out because there, there's something fascinating. I'm not like a, a huge Hitchcock buff, but there's something fascinating about him. And I think we should discuss a little bit. that He was a pop culture figure. Like Absolutely. his TV show made him larger than life at this time. And that's why people are looking for him for the cameos. And that's why he's a, like the trailer he did for this is him discussing the film and doing it in such a cre in it is with his British dry wit and doing it in such a dark, creepy way that you, you it's very enticing. I don't know if anyone's seen the trailer for it, but it is it's very enticing. Like when he's discussing the bathroom. Uh, the way he d- he says in the bathroom, horrible things happened in here. Like just the way he says it is just so. It's like I gotta find out what happened in the bathroom. Like this is it's really engaging. Yeah, he's a real uh, auteur, but he also is a director who is the face of the film, and he's he's like you mentioned, he is that icon. And the TV series was great too. I loved the TV series. Matter of fact, it used to be streaming on either Hulu or Netflix. It, oh, I didn't know that. St- it might still be. I don't know for sure. And I, I would watch it because it was just entertaining. It's, it's fun. It's really. But fun. here's the thing: the on some of those episodes, I remember watching his opening monologue was more entertaining it's, than the actual series. It's the best part. Or this episode. It's the best part. I mean, it really is. It's him uh, with his little props and him just being so. It's like the crypt keeper if he was British and just very reserved. You know, like it's yeah. very. It, it made him just he, he was just infinitely entertaining in the way he handled everything. In fact, this movie, if it they he was actually contemplating it, cutting it down to an hour and just making it an episode of the TV show because that's he was convinced it was not going. And other people as well were convinced it was just it was, it was too it was right. too bad. Like there's no way people, there's going to be an audience for this. I mean, I'm glad I'm glad he did. I'm sure that he's glad he didn't either because he invested so much money of his own money. This thing cost eight hundred thousand or something like that. Grossed thirty two million in the box office. <laughs> and back then too, I don't know what that is, but that's that's he, a he's doing all right. Yeah, it's a big payday. <laughs> or he was. <laughs> I, I think he had an even a pretty sweet deal with uh, Paramount too for it because I don't yeah. think they wanted anything to do with it either. And so they and they didn't think it was going to be a moneymaker. So if I'm not yeah. mistaken, I think they gave him a pretty sweet deal. Yeah. Yeah. He probably owned a good portion of. Yeah. I think he waived his director company. fee, actually, just so he could hold on to the points. Yeah. I, I could be mistaken. Yeah. But I, if I think I remember, that's that's the story. It wouldn't surprise me. Um, so uh, this oil tycoon comes in. He's flashing his cash. And uh, 
then they go into their boss's office. And here's where Caroline comes back in, Alan, with a one-liner. He was flirting she's with like, you. He, he was flirting with you. And then she's like, oh, I guess he must have seen my wedding ring. <laughs> no, Caroline. It, I'm just going to be blatantly honest with you. Okay. Marion is, is more attractive than you. You're not, okay? Caroline, you're not very desirable. I'm just going to lay it out there. Uh, Especially when you're going up against Marion. Marion's good looking. Yeah. And also, we will say, Janet Lee, the mother of Jamie Lee Curtis, who obviously was in Halloween. We're just going to keep coming back to Halloween. Well, time. there's one more. There's one more. And I'm just going we'll to get it out of the way. Okay. I'll get it out of the way. Go for it. Okay. I'll get it out of the way. Janet Lee was also in Halloween H2O with her daughter, Jer- Jamie Lee Curtis. She played a, a minor part. She's also driving the car, the, the psycho car. Uh, and they play the little psycho stinger as she's walking into it. It's just a little nod to it. But I thought it's just another I another love. connection. I love it. Yeah. I also love that Janet Lee was willing to do that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Like huh? I love when when actors are fun and kind of not poking fun of themselves, but nodding to themselves, wink, wink. I like right. that. It's fun. Right. They don't take because a lot of times you sometimes feel like a celebrity is going to be pompous. Right. They're exactly. going to be bigger than life. And if you put it in context, I mean, this film is culturally huge. So it can be easy for people to get a big head in a sense. So I like the little wink, wink and nods. Yeah, it's cool. My favorite contemporary that does that is uh, uh, Ryan Reynolds. I think he's hilarious. He's, he's the best at that. Uh, another one, and it's a little bit different, but Danny DeVito, because yeah. his, his role in it, it's all, I mean, he's Danny DeVito. He's got all these accolades. He's been acting forever, very well respected. And he's in producer, it's always, director, producer, he's director, everything. and he's in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And in one scene, he is buck naked, oiled up, crawling out of a couch. And it's hilarious. I know that scene. That he'll, I know it, that it's scene. so good. Like, just that he'll do that. It's so funny. And a little disturbing. I mean, it's very disturbing. That's what makes it so great. <laughs> once again, I love Danny DeVito, but he's more like a Carolyn than anything. No doubt. No doubt. <laughs> that was me. I'm going to get people just hating on me for that statement. You know what, but Car- uh, Carolyn, she, she's got too big of a head. You know, she needs to be taken down to size a little bit, I think. <laughs> I mean, she did think that the Texas oil tycoon was hitting on, um, was, should have been hitting on her, but she had a wedding. Exactly, event, so. exactly. So uh, what ends up happening is, so it's Mr. Lowry, that's Marion's boss. And, and she, he, he's been, uh, she's been working for, for him for 10 years, right? And he's got 40 grand cash. The, the oil tycoon, that it's Friday afternoon. And by the way, can we say, what are we doing at the beginning of this? Why are we indicating the date and time? Yeah, what does it matter? Exactly. And why does I it wrote matter? That in my, who cares? <laughs> we never referred back to him. It's not important. Yeah. I mean, they, they discuss how long it's been. Like, they discuss later on, you know, how long she's been gone. Like, th- there's no need to do that. No. And that's so if anyone, those that are listening, it just has at the very beginning of the film, the date and the time, which we never refer. It would matter if we somehow referred back to it later, but we never do. Well, and I like unless I said, I'm missing something, maybe Hitchcock threw some in there and it just went over my head. Th- there might be. But if I'm not mistaken, I th- I'm pretty sure it said December and uh, she's heading up north, I think, in California. And it's it's still very warm and people are out, you know, without coats. And it just, it doesn't make sense. It's unnecessary. I agree. It's unnecessary. She goes into the office 
Mr. Lowry says, hey, take this $40,000 and go deposit it in the bank so that it's ready Monday, whatever that means. He, he trusts her entirely, right? Says, take this money. Um, because him and the oil tycoon are going to go get a little drinking done. That's what the oil tycoon, another one-liner from the oil tycoon that's really funny. He's like, we got to get ourselves some drinking done. Well, and, and the, the like, way he outs his boss for, for stashing a bottle in the desk is pretty funny too. Yeah, yeah, he calls him out for being an alcoholic. Exactly. And I'm kind of wondering if, if, if the oil tycoon hadn't put back a few already because he was, he's a little loosey-goosey. Oh, he, I think so. Yeah. I think that we're alluding to that. Um, she takes the cash. She asks her boss, hey, I'm going to d- deposit this in the bank and then I'm going to head home because I've got this splitting headache. Um, and he says, sure, that's fine. And then I love, there's, there's a little punch back at Carolyn on the way out when Marion leaves. And she's like, Carolyn, uh, no, uh, Marion says to Carolyn, you can't buy off unhappiness with pills. Because <laughs> Carolyn once again tries to get her to take the tranquilizer. She, I mean, is she a dealer? Is she trying to, you know, find clients she, or what's going Carolyn's on there, man? slanging on the side. Yeah, she Carolyn's is. slanging. God. You know? um, so deplorable. But, she leaves, goes home. We see a little bit of a shirtless shot here with, with Marion. Man, Hitch, again, Hitch. Not going to lie, Janet Lee's a fox. Yeah. And um, Hitch, he's really milking this for everything it's do worth. Do people use point. that word that are my... A fox. I thought I was like, 80-year-olds used that word. I'm just trying to be, his, <laughs> I'm trying to be era specific. I like it. Okay. okay. Um, but she goes home and she... This is a, these are the little subtleties that I love about Hitchcock. This is where you know he's a craftsman. And they're real simple, but she's in her bedroom. She walks over by the bed. And then we see an insert shot of the money with a lot of cash sticking out of the envelope. We see a bunch of $100 bills. And this is the plot point that gets Marion thinking, right? She's like, hmm. And so then she starts basically packing her suitcase. She's well, going to go on the run with this cash. And there's, there's, I don't want to say I'm taking issue with one of the, with this plot point, but for me, I'm not sure based on her character, she seems like a trustworthy person in general. I'm not sure there's enough urgency for her to take the cash and run to do something so out of character. I'm not sure that that, that little bit of exposition we got with her and Sam, I wasn't, I didn't leave that scene thinking, oh God, they need money. Well, the dialogue explains that they do. And Sam specifically says, maybe, he alludes, if you remember, something to the fact that when I pay off the debt, then maybe we can pursue something more long-term in terms of marriage. Okay. Yeah, and and that could be. To me, it just, it it seemed like, yeah, it kind of sucks we don't have money, but it wasn't like something super urgent. Yeah, I don't, What more so for me, I don't believe that, her, like you said, her character, although I don't think she would take that kind of a risk. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I would think it'd have to be, it, it'd have to be something super urgent for her to do something. So out of character is, is kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. And so, but nonetheless, she does, she packs up, she gets in her car, she starts driving, she's downtown on her way, leaving the city. What we end up figuring out is of course, she's driving to California to meet up with uh, with Sam, who owns the hardware store. And so, I mean, I think that, by the way, just side note, PC or not here, I think Marion 
could do better than Sam. Sorry, Sam. Um, <laughs> Sam's dude. When he had his shirt off, man, he's buff, dude. He he's cut. Sam's a good looking guy. He's a good looking. He's looking. Are, good are we guy. just going off looks? Or are we going off? <laughs> he, he's a hunk of meat, man. She she's she's into it. He is. He's a good looking dude. She's just looking but, for some arm candy. He's a, <laughs> with uh no with 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 pennies in his wallet. Ex- yeah, exactly. <laughs> she's driving out of the city, and then we have this just coincidence scene where she stops at a stoplight. And the Texas oil tycoon and Mr. Lowry, her boss, walk across the intersection and they, they see she he sees Marion in the car. Yeah. And it gives a weird look too. it's the way this whole thing is shot again. Maybe I'm just looking at it from a perspective of someone in 2020, but. In 1960, was where they all shot this weird. It just there's something I don't know what it is about some of these shots when she's in the car. They just look unnatural, and I don't know if it's because they're using uh, back projection or if it's a matte painting or what it is. But a lot of these shots just they look weird. They just look unnatural. They're um, yeah, it's a specific style, but it is some kind of projection. Uh, back projection, but do you right? need to do that? And maybe they did need to do that because of the budget. But I, it just seems like you could you could shoot on a on a street and not have to do that. Yeah, I mean, you also got to consider, you know, you're 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 filming in reality. You're filming in Los Angeles, right? So trying to shut down any kind of intersection is a pain in the ass. True. Right. True. And so they're doing some kind of back projection. They do look a little bit. Um, uh, what's the word that, you know, what it ends up being is that the depth between the character, it feels fake, right? right? It doesn't have that authentic, authentic look. So I think it's probably maybe just a budget thing. I don't know. Well, and he there, did that there with are, a lot of his move, movies though. He has a lot of that kind of projection. Yeah. It's, uh, it doesn't, projection. it doesn't hold up well <laughs> at all, but it, there are some shots where it's not necessarily a back projection or anything like that, but there are some shots that look unnatural that work really well. For the film, I'm, I'm thinking specifically about the cop when it's like hard cut, bam, to a close up of the cop staring at her or the private investigator, Arbogast, hard cut to him. Like there are some weird, unnatural shots that really work and, and leave you a little unsettled. But for the most part, like th- that the shot with the with the boss, with Mr. Lowry, it just didn't it didn't look right to me. I don't know. But here, here's the thing. I mean, what it does do is it's really a story point. Because that's a it, it fulfills something later in the story that uh, Mr. Lowry saw her leaving town. Right. <clears throat> so then it gets into the, the shot of the cop. What's this cop? So she's on the road on her way to California. She pulls over. She's sleeping in her car. So a cop pulls over, knocks on the window. And tells her, hey, there's plenty of places to sleep, plenty of motels in the area. And she acts like the most guilty person on the planet. <laughs> like, immediately, she doesn't even talk to the cop. She sees him and immediately starts to take off. She goes, well, she no, she asks a question like, am I doing something wrong? Right, right. <laughs> it, does it look like I'm doing something wrong? He says, well, quite frankly, yes, it does. Because- I actually like her response, though, because she, tur- she turns her car engine on. And she's basically like, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> and then the cop says, no, you're not. Turn your car engine off and give me your license. <laughs> and she does. I mean, either run or don't run, man. You just it, it, Well, and then the, the, the very obvious following 
of her. Like the cop just follows her all around town very obviously. And it's it's just a weird, it's very ominous and it's very creepy. But she goes to she goes to trade in her car. And don't Can I say something though? Yeah, Before go for we get it. to her trading in the car. Because now she's suspicious. What? I'm not going to lie to you. If the cops sent her on her way, which he did, why in the hell is he following her? He's that super suspicious. And then if you're going to follow her, why be that obvious? And by the way, she got to, for what would appear to be a night. Now I'm getting real picky, but she got to California really fast. Yeah, really fast. Really fast. Yeah. Like uh, In no time. Especially when uh, the pull-off after she meets the cop, if you see the, the street sign, it says Los Angeles, Bakersfield. So she can go south or she can go north. And so in one day's time, she cruised from Phoenix to Bakersfield. And how far away is Bakersfield from San Francisco? It's still a good, I would, I'm guessing here, but probably around two, three hours. Okay. So it's, it's, it's close enough. Okay. That's all right. That cleared up a, a question, but I mean, when it's she, in that ballpark, if she, so if, if you were on the run and you committed a crime and a cop was following you and obviously you want to ditch your car, I, I get that. I get that, that idea. Are you going to go do it while he's following you right on your tail? Like she pulls it into the <laughs> car lot. He literally gets out of the car and is leaning on his car watching her. And she still goes in and trades in her car. Like, wouldn't yeah. you want to do that secretly? But yes, you would. But why? I don't get the, the trading in the car, though. Uh, I mean, I understand because she wants to ditch it because if they find the car, then they'll find her. So I get like if they find the, the car, she wants to be far away from the car. Like, I, I understand it. I just don't understand the timing of it. Don't with, with do it. There. Like it's supposed to be a sneaky tactic in order to get away from the law. You don't tell them that you're trading in your car. It doesn't make any exactly. sense. Exactly. Yeah. She so, does trade the car. She pays 700 cash plus the turn in gets the cops suspicious the whole time. She cruises by the way, she, by the way, fastest car sales transaction in the world <laughs> She doesn't give a shit, man. I mean, she even- walks in there. She says, take this. Oh, he says, how much? Or she says, how much? And he goes, 700 plus the car. And she goes, deal. And, and then all of a sudden, within 10 minutes, she's driving out. Now, I've bought a few cars in my life. And never has it been 10 minutes of a transaction. God, no. It's it's an all-day thing, usually. And uh, not only that, but the, I mean, he's trying. The, 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 the salesman's trying to get her. He's taken for a spin. Like, yeah. Yeah. Are you sure? Which no, no salesman has ever done in the history of car sales. Exactly. And that, I mean, that's why it's, she's just acting like the most guilty person on the planet. I mean, it's her conscience. Maybe she just really is. She feels it. She feels the guilt. Maybe. Maybe she, cause she does later on. She gets, she, anyway, she drives up the road and she stops at the Bates motel. Well, real quick before we get there, I got one more, one more point on this suspicious behavior the cop has been following her following her so obviously why stop now why did you just let her drive off the lot and go away if you've been tailing her this whole time he's like ah she just bought a new car. oh well what can i do now i guess she's gone <laughs> I had no, no more suspicions <laughs> uh, my car's all the way across the street i guess, I guess she's got to go like it just doesn't make any sense she dropped and got a new one that's like getting a new phone you just it's a burner car <laughs> exactly it's a burner car. It's a drug dealer car. <laughs> he doesn't car. even care. He just stops. He's like, 
Well, I guess uh, I'm off my shift now. <laughs> I'll head back to Bakersfield. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. But yeah, then then she pulls up. Well, and it's it's raining, and on her way up to where she eventually goes to the Bates Motel, it's raining, and it's the most rain I've ever seen, uh, ever. I mean, it's just washing. I mean, it's just, it's like someone just keeps dumping an infinite bucket of water on top of her windshield. And I love the shot though. It's it, the great. Handheld kind of interior it's car great. shot. And that's the other thing. A lot of these technical shots, mostly what you're seeing is a lot of clean camera movement, slow paced, very methodical. But that shot in particular, when you see it's it's still it's not shaky, but it's more handheld and it's kind of got that little bit of movement to it uh, that makes it feel very POV. I like that shot. Yeah. And and I also like it's it's a little bit of foreshadowing of what's going to happen because she's she's being showered with water and later on as she's in the shower we know we know it happens but she does pull up to the Bates motel obviously it's so iconic seeing that sign but man like this still holds up seeing the house behind the hotel yeah. is that still is creepy to this day like it is it holds up very well there's a reason that house is still on the universal lot they tore it down did they tear they, it down? They tore it down. I'm so when? disappointed. I think it was like a year or two ago. Because, so as you know, I lived in California. We had season passes to Universal Studios because my kids love Universal Studios, but they loved the tram tour. They oh, thought it was, it was fantastic. I, I thought, I don't think they do that anymore, do they? Do they well, still they do, do it? Well, this was what, two years ago? Uh, so in that do. time span, that house was still there. And as a matter of fact, maybe it is a, then actor on the porch run after you on the tram. Oh, do they? It's Norman Bates. Do they still have uh, Jaws on the tour yeah. and King yeah, Kong still, and all that stuff? As okay. of the last time I went, which is probably now almost two years, Okay, um, they still had maybe, all that. So maybe I'm that, thinking of, of the Orlando one. I'm not sure. It makes me saddened. I don't think they, I swear I don't think they tore it down. Well, I heard if that, they did, I will write an angry <laughs> hate mail. I, I heard that they were going to rebuild it. So maybe they tore it down. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. Oh, yeah. It might not be. The but I do know one. that the motel is still there and it's basically in the same form that it was with a little bit of refurbishing since they built it. It is really cool. Like, again, I, I had been on that tour when I was younger before I'd ever seen the movie. So it is really cool when you get to see that that house. It's freaking creepy, man. It is really it's it's, creepy. The design of it. And I guess it's designed after an old painting and it's just done so well. It's it's really the epitome of a horror house. It is. It is. Even the it inside. Once once we go inside, it's not as creepy, but it's still it's still it's it's unsettling. It's got that Victorian it's, wood. It feels it doesn't it feels unnatural. Like it's not like yeah. scary like the outside, but it's you go in and it's like, oh, something's going something's it feels not right. Supernatural here. in a way. Ghostly. Yes, that's it. Yes. You know? Exactly. <clears throat> yeah, that that house is great. Um but she pulls in and finally, after 30 plus minutes or in that range, we we meet Norman. Mr. Norman Bates and Anthony Perkins, man, Anthony is. Perkins destroys this role. He's so good. Have you seen the remake? So in prep for this, I started watching it. I haven't made it through yet. I, I don't know. Are you talking? Hold on. Let me pull back. Are you talking about this? The Vince Vaughn remake? Yeah. The, I think Gus, Gus Van Sant. Yeah. Gus Van Sant. Yeah. Are you okay. I thought you were talking about for a minute. I was uh, confusing him for Psycho 2. Oh, no. See, I, I, I think I've seen. I know I've seen four. 
So I think I've seen Psycho and Psycho 4. Go figure. But I haven't seen two. The Gus Van Sant remake is close to shot by shot as you can get. Yeah. And I, I don't. I mean, we could talk about this later on once we're through this movie. But I like Vince Vaughn. I'll just throw that out there and then we'll mix it up later. Uh, I like Vince Vaughn. Eh, I, I, Vince he's, Vaughn's He's okay. not as good as Anthony Perkins. In, in that role, I, he is definitely no Anthony Perkins. He's, no, because Perkins is... There's so many little nuances to the way he plays this character that make it so like this. This is another thing you talked about. Oh, maybe if another director took the helm on this film, it wouldn't quite have the same uh, cultural zeitgeist that it did. I honestly believe that if they had cast this with someone else, it wouldn't carry the same tonality that it does because he's so good in playing that twisted killer. Agree. A hundred percent. That. You can tell from the beginning, if, if, if you know, if you pay attention close enough, you can tell everything that's going to happen just on the way he reacts to certain things, uh, what gets him going, what makes him nervous. Like he's Anthony Perkins does such a great job. And I, I think just based based on knowing what we know about Hitchcock, you got to give him a lot of credit for his direction because he was yeah. he, I mean, he was militant with his actors. I mean, rehearsals were a nightmare. He had everything planned out. There was no room for improvisation. And so I, I really think that Hitchcock deserves a lot of credit too. But there, Anthony Perkins just knocks it out of the park. He's great. And one of the things about Norman's character that makes him so strange and creepy is like his uncertainty about certain social protocols. He's <laughs> When he first meets her and she comes in, the things that he says, you know, like the dialogue and the way that he interacts with her immediately go, okay, this guy's off. Right, right. You, you don't He's know off. what's going on, but you know, you, we know we're in danger at this point. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so um, she drives in, she gets a room. He starts, she starts telling him that she's from Los Angeles, right? Um, doesn't want to dive bulge anything right fake name in the ledger and he's instantly creepy the one the subtleties again too is like certain shots so when she signs in um and then he goes to grab the key he looks at the keyboard not the keyboard the symphonic keyboard but the actual where the the keys to the hotel or the motel are and he kind of briefly scans like one two three it has one through seven or eight and then he goes over and then he goes back to one. Yeah. And one. And of course, no one's at the motel, but the idea is, oh, I know what I can do with my voyeurism and from, from my office to room one. And he's ashamed of it, too. I think that like he's already hearing his mother's voice in his head at that point. Like, because he is that's what, kind of the whole point is he's got this. And. Obviously, it's not a spoiler. I'm sure everyone knows by now, but he's got this other personality in his head, which is his mother, which makes him ashamed of when he's attracted to, to girls. He goes and when he takes her, he takes her into the room to show her around, starts saying really weird things like the mattress is soft. What? <laughs> There's hangers in the closet. What? And, um, and then like, he, he here's the bathroom. But he doesn't say that. He said, and there's the, and he just point, like he can't bring himself to say the word bathroom. Yeah. He turns the light on though. Yeah, he does. Super creepy, man. Run, get in your car and go. This is not okay. One of the last thing he says, this is the other thing. 
I wanted to ask you, at what point are you out of there? Already. I'm already out of there. Because then he, on his way out, he says, if you want anything at all, just tap on the wall. <laughs> what? Tap on the wall? <laughs> no, I'm not. What? I'll tell you when I'm out. I still might be in. Okay. I look for the best in people, Alan. <laughs> You're an optimist. What can I say? You're an optimist. I'm, I'm still in. Okay. You're, you're out already. I'm already out. I, I've seen this movie before. Like not this literal movie, but I, I, I've, no, I but know I'm how this plays it, out. Put it all in context, right? You're a man. I know that does matter. Female, male. Like mm-hmm. there's a little bit of a difference there, right? Um, you're out. You're out already. I'm out. I mean, maybe not out, but I am. I am certainly not taking his invitation to have dinner with him. Okay, that's what I was going to get to because he says there's a diner up the road, but you're not really going to go out there. I could make you some dinner. You could join me. You're out at that point. <laughs> yeah, maybe not out, but I'm like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm good, dude. I'm, I'm good. I'm not going to go. I up. might still be in if he offered me a fucking real dinner, sandwiches <laughs> Sandwich. and milk. Well, and, well, here's one thing. Cause he I don't want sandwiches and milk. If he said, I got a T-bone with potato and you're like, uh, God whatever. damn my intuition. I'm going to get that T-bone. Exactly. Yeah. I've, I've been driving for, <laughs> from Phoenix in, in record time, <laughs> in record time from Phoenix up here. Give me that, that, but sandwiches and milk. I'm going to say, no, Normie, I'm done. <laughs> not having it. Well, it certainly I'm not going to go up because originally the, uh, the invitation was to go have dinner with him up in the house. Yeah, but that it's he says to her, "Hey, it's homey. It's a homey house." Yeah. But here's where I get a little confused. Not fancy. Because he goes up there and Marion can hear his mother yelling at him. Oh yeah, the the sonic distance of the <laughs> of her window being open and her being able to hear the mother and Norman arguing. There's no way she's discerning right. what they're saying based on the the practical distance between the it, two places. Exactly. But also, mother. Okay, we'll forgive him for that. We'll though. forgive that's, him for that. Okay, that's fine. That's we'll, we'll just that's creative liberty. That's fine. But mother's dead. Mother yes. mother doesn't have a voice. Whose voice is she hearing? Is that just Norman doing a very good impression of an, of an elderly woman? That is my suspicion. Okay, it's got to be. It's got to be. That's how I've always seen it. The times that I've watched the movie. That's dead on, man. That's pretty damn good. Um, And he's really good. I mean, he's psycho. (laughs) He's psycho. (laughs) So, but I mean, he's really good at actually creating a dialogue between two people. Yeah, it's true. On the fly. Throwing his voice that far, too. All the way down the hill. Throwing his voice. Very good. I mean, but I mean, like, the, the dialogue that he has between mother and himself when mother like takes the complete opposing side and she's like, do I have to tell her that she can't come up here for dinner? Do you not have the guts for it? And you're like, Oh shit, that's some resentment that he has towards mom. Right, man. This is like, so it's actually good that it's, you know what I mean though? Cause like, that's actually, he's harboring something where he can go that deep down and make this hardcore dialogue between two of them. Well, and speaking of mother, I mean, do you know who Norman Bates is based off of? Ed Gein. So Ed Gein was... Tell me who Ed Gein is. Ed Gein is a very... Fan, he, he's... And I don't want to be total nerd here, but he's mistaken as a serial killer. He, he's not... Hold on, let, serial, hold on. Let me go wake my wife yeah, up. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. She, would, she would know this. So Ed Gein was not a serial killer because he only killed two people, but he was a grave robber. 
And the relationship between Norman and his mother is very similar to the relationship between Ed Gein and his mother. And he dug up his mother and, and he had her in the house. And I mean, it's, it's so it's based on that same story that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is based on. Same story that Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs is based on. Only Chainsaw in Silence of the Lambs is more about how Ed Gein would make clothing and furniture from human skin. So a little bit different, but all based from the same story. But that is a creep. It's a very, the way they they portrayed the abusive relationship of the mother and Norman is just done very well. Like you really, you really hate her. Yeah. And I'm not a, like, as, I'm, I'm with you. I'm not as a, a, that's great. I love that little bit of history, but also I'm not as big a serial killer fanatic as my wife, but I know from watching Mindhunter that <laughs> uh, serial killers, many often, oftentimes have really uh, horrible motherly issues. Yeah. It's a problem. It's, it's a it's theme. A problem. It's a common theme. It's a, th- it's a common theme. It definitely right. is. <laughs> Anyway, he throws his voice uh, about 600 yards. Um, <laughs> uh, and has this phenomenal dialogue between himself, which I can let pass because, like I said, he's harboring that. He's able to pull mother in and out quickly from his mm-hmm. psyche. Uh, he comes back down to the motel because uh, she can't go up because mother won't, won't let her. But uh, she says, oh, I've caused you some trouble. He brings down milk and sandwiches. Milk and sandwiches. It's so just, I don't know. It's it's just so. She's Here's where she's so inviting, though, because Marion's like, I've caused you some trouble. And as long as you fix supper, we might as well eat it. What? No. No. You I'm hear not. that? You hear that interaction? I'm not out, by the way. I've just locked the door. Okay. So I'm you, not out of the motel. You, you're, you're out. Not, you're not gone yet, but you're certainly not having dinner in the parlor. You're with on him. I-5 up to... Fair, fair I'm halfway mail. to San Francisco Whatever. already. Yeah. I mean, I'm yeah. flooring it. Um, I'm in the motel room uh, with the door locked. I'm not having supper with Norman. Okay. It makes sense. <laughs> I'll tell you when I I'll think, tell you when I start. You gotta tell me when you're out. Okay. <laughs> I have a feeling you, it's coming pretty soon. It's it's pretty close <laughs> because <laughs> but I'll tell you exactly when it is. I wrote it in my notes and I was like, this is where. This is where I get the fuck out. Okay. Okay. Like literally stand up in the middle of the conversation and I'm done. I think I have a, an idea where it might be. So they uh, start having dinner, but he offers her to go to the office because it's warmer. And then he offers her to go to the back parlor, which is the back side of the office to sit down. And inside he's, when he opens the door and they go to, to eat their, their dinner. There's just uh, taxidermied birds all over the walls. Very weird, and and positioned as if they are. I mean, it kind of it kind of calls back to that opening shot where we feel like we're voyeurs looking on in on this couple. It kind of feels like a very similar thing. Yeah, they're all perched. They're perched uh, and they're staring down directly into the parlor at the people who are sitting there. And can I just say what Hitchcock must have a fascination with birds. I, you know what I was thinking, like I was trying to think what, what could these represent? What metaphors going on here? And then I'm thinking maybe he just really likes birds. Maybe he just really likes birds. I mean, there are, if you look at it, the owl. So there's some birds of prey. Yeah, but I don't think all of them are. Not all of them are. Cause there's peacocks and uh, crows. Right. You know, the one, the, the big emphasis is the owl. Yeah. And that, that's definitely a bird of prey. 
Um, she politely starts eating the dinner. And then this conversation, you know, starts. Um, and he starts telling her how she eats like a bird <laughs> while they're surrounded by birds. I can't help but think of Ace Ventura 2 when he walks in the room and sees all the taxidermied animals. Yeah. Uh -huh. You yep. know what I'm talking yep. about? Yep. And he's like, this is a lovely room of death. <laughs> um, but he starts talking about how easy it is to taxidermy. <laughs> what uh we're getting okay, okay. Are, are you inching towards the door yet i'm starting to shuffle my feet okay okay all right okay um um and then he says how he hates the look of beasts and he, that's why he stuffs birds and then he says that she says that's a very uncommon hobby <laughs> And, and uh, he's like, yeah, you know, here, the cost of the chemicals are the only thing that really matters. Everything else is free. And you're like, yeah, this is mom's. <laughs> now I'm like, I'm about five feet from the door. <laughs> so, you know, those times when you're in a conversation in a group and you're just like, you're not in it. So I, I do it. I'm not going to lie. Sure. And I just start to, you just start to slowly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, you just work your way out. That's way where out. I'm at right now. I'm not out yet. Um, <clears throat> Are you still eating the food? Are you still eating the sandwich? Oh, I didn't touch it at all. Okay. <laughs> okay. I didn't touch the food. <laughs> all right. At least you got, you're smart there. Um, I didn't touch the food. And then he starts talking about the, his mother, right? And, and like the relationship between his mother. And here's where I bolt for the, for the door. And it's partly because Anthony Perkins' performance is so good. So, so good. So good. Creepy. You know, you think of legendary, I, I don't know how to describe them in, in a sense, but maybe villains. You know, you think of Anthony Hopkins in like Silence of the Lambs and you're like, that is just creepy shit. Actually, Anthony Perkins is just as good in a more subtle fashion in this movie. Absolutely agree. Especially the way he turns. Like he, he can, he changes instantly and he can go from super fidgety and nervous to super serious and scary just like that and then That's and then flip right back to it and it it, it is it does it, you can imagine that someone who's psychotic would be able to do that absolutely and those are the little the little things that i'm looking for that that make me just completely uh kind of nervous and scared and, and, and really make it believable uh, to what this guy is. But he has this, this shot that I love, by the way. I love this shot. He's leaning back. It's a medium close-up. He's actually relaxed backwards, right? And he starts talking about how, because she alludes to the fact that maybe your mom's old and senile and she should go to a, a psych ward. Right. Basically. And as soon as that like starts to trigger in his head, he leans forward, right? And starts talking. And he says, he says, um, he, he says this line of like, people always call a madhouse someplace, don't they? Because she says, you should maybe put her someplace. And he's like, oh, really? Should I someplace? And as soon as he starts getting into this idea and, he starts talking about in detail what, you know, the psych wards are and what they, I'm immediately, I'm, I'm out. 
interesting how he knows so many details about these places. That's <laughs> what I'm getting at. I'm right. now I'm reading the subtext in my head, going, "Okay, like this dude's crazy." Yeah, he's a psycho. That's when you're gone. I'm. I you've reached your limit. I I was already nudging towards the door, and now I knocked the sandwiches and milk over, <laughs> and ran out. You threw the milk in his face and just bolted. <laughs> I didn't even have time for that. But that there's if you if you'll see it, he says they always call um, those places some place right. or something, and he leans forward, and his whole charisma ch- starts to change and you're going dude this dude's creepy and this, this is also i think if i'm not mistaken this is when the camera it goes to a profile shot kind of him and it kind of the camera turns and adjusts itself so you see you see the owl kind of looming yeah. over him and it's almost it's almost like this the eat the devil on his shoulder has taken yeah. over at that point and maybe that's when he's like she's dead it's either that point or because she then gets she starts to, I think get a little creeped out so she kind of starts to work her way out of the room, not to leave though just to go back to her room. <laughs> I would have left, um, <laughs> but she goes back. But there's also a point where she says, "Oh, I, I." She actually has a little bit of uh, she uh, conscious uh, decision where she goes, mm, "Maybe I shouldn't keep going to see Sam and take this money." Yeah, so, so- somewhere. Somewhere throughout that conversation with Norman, he actually he actually put a little psychotherapy on her and made her change her whole uh, 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 stance. I was actually going to ask you about that. Did, I don't know what about this, what it was about this conversation that made her get a conscience all of a sudden. And I don't, I mean, is it the talk of going, being put away somewhere or is it, I don't know what it was, but I was trying to pinpoint what it was that would, Make anyone be like, instead of saying like, I'm getting the fuck out of there, saying, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to do the right thing here. Like, I don't understand what it is about that interaction. I don't either. I don't know. I I don't have an answer because I agree. I don't know what about that made her consciously flip. Right. I have no idea. Doesn't make any sense. Because like I said, I'm out of there. But this conversation basically ends, but she alludes to the fact that I, I better just get to sleep. I'm tired. He's like, don't you want to stay up and talk longer? And you're like, no, I don't. Thanks. Absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> um, but she says, I have a long now because this is where we learn that piece of information because she says, oh, I have a long drive back to Phoenix. Okay. This is where I think he starts to want to go further because she says Phoenix. Then he checks the logbook again and she told him she was from Los Angeles. And not only that, I think she also tells. Gets- her or she also tells him her real name at this point that's true so but when he goes back to the logbook that information is revealed and for me that's at least part of the reason that he's like okay this bitch is dead yeah i i think so because it's a <laughs> because perfect- there's a lie there right, right. people that that lie just starts to fester and it's going to start changing his whole uh, demeanor. I, I think so i think that's a good point and again it's not him thinking that it's it's this whole Weird. It's the mother going, this is a lying bitch. Right, exactly. And she's seduced you. She's tried to seduce you. Right. Even though that's not at all what happened. No. Um, she goes back to her room. Then we see the crazy voyeur people. <laughs> so By the creepy. way, that side profile I shot, that close-up, it's so cool. It is. It is. 
It's done. It's just done really well. It's just it, the, the lighting and the way that that's, it's just a beautiful shot. It is. Um, and, and basically he's flipped now and she goes to take a shower and, um, and this here is, it is where here it is. This is it. Here it is. He goes back to the house for a moment and then she's in her room. She tears up. She made a ledger that said $40,000 minus 700, et cetera. And she tears it up and throws it in the garbage. No, she throws because, it in the toilet or in the toilet because she's had uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A, a flip in consciousness or right. a flip in morale or right. ethics or whatever you want to call them. Because she's now going to go back. By the way, just going to leave Sam high and dry. Yeah. She's one hour away from Sam and she's like, eh. Well, I don't think really? Sam knows she's coming either. He doesn't. But I just mean in her mind, you're one hour away. Yeah, yeah. You're and not all even of a sudden, Norman by, Bates right. just psychotherapy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> psychotherapy <laughs> session with Norman Bates and you just got flipped. Yeah, exactly. And the only um, reason I emphasize the toilet is because she flushes, she rips up the, the, the paper flushes it down the toilet and that's the first time in cinema history that you've seen oh, a toilet flush on screen damn you and your damn flushing of toilets so weird man it's just such a weird thing for the censors oh it's so to strange. be to be like no no toilets it, I, it's just, just a weird thing i want to be on that board at the mpaa in the 50 in 59 when you're screening psycho and they're like, what? Do you- and the toilet's <laughs> flushing. <laughs> Can you imagine the field day that they had with this movie? Like, How much oh. stuff did he have to cut out just to get this? Yeah, I wish I knew a little more historical context, but I know he did have to, to cut out. And we, this moves us right into the shower scene, right? Where, like we alluded to before, I mean, this is a scene nowadays. It's, it's easy to shoot. Right. This, this thing, this scene took a week to shoot seven full days. Uh, Anthony Perkins was, is not in it at all. It's a body double. Um, he's not in it. This, and again, I'm going to, I'm going to mention this documentary again, because I think it's really, really good. And I th- really think people should, should check it out. It's called 78 slash 52 because there are 78 shots and 52 cuts in this scene. And especially for the time, when they would let scenes go on and on and on. It, it's, I mean, incredibly fast-paced. Um, the pacing of this entire thing is flawless. It's perfect. And I, I'll talk about my favorite part. But also in this documentary, you have Walter Murch breaking down the cuts, which is really cool. Because Walter Murch is, like, iconic in the world of editing. So Legendary. Seeing him cut down or break down how psycho and the shower scene is edited is just it's it's something you just it's just it's it's listening to a master discuss the work of another master. It's really, really cool. Absolutely. In the four years I taught editing at the L.A. Film School, the two I used two people to discuss principles of editing. One was Hitchcock. The other was Merch. Perfect. Hitchcock has three principles of editing. Merch has six. But the second of, of Hitchcock's principles have to do with this, which is a rapid succession of images used as a mosaic to create an impression, an overall impression. And this scene does that. At no time does it ever feel like you don't know. Because it, it's, it's hard sometimes in a close-up to, to feel like you know the geography of where you are on a bigger scale. Right. But the way he pieced it together 
you, you always kind of feel like you understand the dynamics and the, the quote unquote blueprint of the bathroom. You know where you're at. It doesn't feel disorienting or confusing. On the flip side of that, it feels disorienting because it's so fast cut. It's supposed to, right. I mean, before you understand what you're seeing, you're on to the next shot, the next cut. Like it's, and there are even a couple jump cuts in here, but they, they serve it. They serve the scene so well. It's just everything. It's just, it's so well done. And when you first hear it, took them a week to do it, 78 shots and, uh, and 52 cut. Like you're like, that's, ve- that's, ex- that seems excessive, especially when you think about how editing was back then. Like now we, we press a button, you know, that's, that's it. And if I don't like it, command Z and it's, you're, you're back. But back then you actually had, it would take, I don't know how long to make one cut. Like it's going to take a couple minutes. You got to actually cut it and paste it and actually tape it together. And it's, it's just, it was done so differently. So the skill and you keep, you keep talking about the craftsmanship. This is just so it's a, it's a masterclass in craftsmanship. I mean, I think we could go through the internet, you could see thousands of people talking about what this shot means. But this is one instance where I'll, I'll agree with all of them in the sense that this really has, it warrants the accolade that it gets um, based on not only the time in which it was created, but th- like you said, the craftsmanship in which it was delivered. Absolutely. And um, it, it starts out when she's- And the in, music. In, oh, and the music. I, that's, I, I wrote that down because I wanted to discuss it. That it serves it so well. The music is so, like you said, what did you call it? Annoying. Uh, I can't remember. Yeah, annoyingly beautiful. Annoyingly beautiful. And that's that's very true. Like the strings. That's all it is. It's just strings, man. And it's very high pitched, and it hurts your ears. But it it's exactly what you would be feeling if you were in that situation right now. Yeah. Just str- it's pretty haunting. It, this is definitely that other thing that we were talking about before, where it's it's. It's a precursor to horror. This is a horror scene through and through in every in every way, shape, and form. And it was it's done in a way that horror was never done up to this point. This created the genre as we know it today. I really truly believe that. Yeah, it's this yeah. this exact scene, and um, it starts off. First of all, <laughs> have you ever have you ever stepped into a shower and then turned it on? <laughs> Why do people do that in movies? It drives me crazy. It drives ne- me crazy. No, I let that I let that sucker run for a good 30 to 60 seconds. You got to let it warm up first. <laughs> you know, you have to. Anyway, that's nitpicking, but I swear they do this in movies all the time. Um but she gets in the shower, turns it on. Which by the way, sorry to cut you off. <laughs> when you watch Janet Lee, she's a good actor and I tell you because that water wasn't warm. There's no way that was warm. And you can see it su- very slightly. And her reaction is, oh, it feels so good. It feels so good. But I can actually tell that she's like, this For, when it cold. turns on, like you can see the air kind of gets sucked out of her because it's cold. You can see it but for a split second. She's trying to be like, oh, it's warm. It's and good. it's 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 very strange, too. Like, I, I don't know why. I mean, there are theories, but why so over the top with how happy she is to be in that shower? Because she is just having a good old time as soon she's as that water turns on. Like, <laughs> she's having a great time. So and, ha- uh, she should be exhausted. I, I would think so. I mean, maybe it's just because she is, you know, cleansing herself of this crime she committed and she's made the decision to write it. Maybe that's what it is. 
but like it. it is pure euphoria. I'll tell you that it is like, I've never seen anyone have that much fun in the shower. Like it's well, ridiculous. I guess that's the way to go before you meet your demise. I guess so, man. Enjoy your shower. Um, mother comes in, mother comes in and th- the way this is done is so well, like it's, it's so good because you, you have the camera, uh, and you have her in the shot and then you see a figure emerge and it's cloudy because you're seeing it through the shower curtain and you see a figure emerge and then it's just like, holy shit. And you, th- you're just thinking that's Norman. Like this creep is finally, finally showing his true colors and then opens a shower curtain and it's not Norman. You don't know who it is, but it looks like an old woman. And so you're like, it's mother. Like, it's just, it's, there's so much going on and so much your brain has to get adjusted to in such a short amount of time. And that's what, one of my favorite sequences in all of film is obviously from my favorite movie, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, when Leatherface shows up and it, it, I, I think that had to have inspired this scene had to had to have inspired the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because Leatherface shows up, kills a dude and is gone like that before your brain can even understand what's happening. It's just done. It's so scary. And I think that's kind of what happens here is she comes in from the second she comes in. I timed it. It's like 15 or 20 seconds. Like it's super fast. All these cuts of her just getting stabbed. The sound design is just insane. And then all of a sudden she's gone. Like and all we hear is one is like one screeching, like a one scream initially before he just starts slaying her with this knife. Yes, it, yes, and, and the sound design. I, I guess it's it's the sound of stabbing into watermelons or stabbing into melons, and it's just such a great choice. And um, and the sound of the shower going and her screaming and the the strings the 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 iconic. Uh, score it's just the whole thing is just done it's shocking is what it is absolutely and the favorite my favorite part of it's actually the end when she is now meet met her demise and she's just lying on the bathroom floor that eye shot is amazing phenomenal shot and i love the transition of the shot from the eyeball to uh the drain on the shower it's great they Hitchcock really lets you sit with that. Like he really. Once again, we talked about subtext and being a craft. Like there's subtext there. You can interpret that. And a lot of people could, could take that one away pretty easily because it goes from her eyeball, the circular geometric shape of the eyeball to the circular geometric shape of the drain and water just flowing into the drain and blood to nowhere. Right. Right. Or we don't know where, but it's gone. And just just the con the contrast of the speed of the kill and then the lingering after the fact is just it's it you're catching your breath while you're he's letting you sit with this horror that you just witnessed and the aftermath of it. It's just done. The fact that this was done in 1960 just blows my mind because I don't think a lot of people would have the balls to do it today because it really is. And can you imagine being an audience? In 1960, there's hype about this movie, but you're used to Hitchcock doing things like North by Northwest, and you just witness that. I mean, that's just got to be, I don't know, just terrifying. You know that people were walking out going, what? Yes, exactly. This is not Hitchcock. (laughs) What happened? (laughs) Yeah. Protests. Yeah. But that's my favorite moment is, like you said, when she's just lying there, and you're just left to sit and think about what you just saw. It's, It's just done. 
the pacing. It's got that because a lot of times with a with a kill, you the kill happens and you move on, and it and it happens like this does happen quick. But I mean, in this one, it it's got an existential viewpoint, which is like, man, I got to think about some shit. Right. Right. Like it's not the I'm not moving on. I'm like sitting in that moment, like this. Okay, what he makes you start thinking. Okay, well, what does happen? Where are we going? What are we right, doing? Like, right, it's it's deep. It's pretty. Especially layered. if you, especially if you think about this character was the main character of the movie. Yeah, and we're only an hour in. We still have you know forty fifty minutes left. Done. And so, what else are we going? If they're going to kill off the main character in such a brutal way, someone we identified with, what else are we going to see later on? Nothing's yeah. off the table at this point. Absolutely. And then we hear uh, Norman again from the house screaming blood, blood, mother, mother, mother blood. blood. He comes running out of the house, goes to the, the bathroom, the motel bathroom, sees her lying there and acts utterly distraught in just un, just amazed at what's, what's he's, what he's witnessing. And then uh, comes a sequence that I'm, man, it just goes on too long. <laughs> him cleaning up and going in and out of the room and all this stuff like it's it's just it's a little tedious the the shot of him when he's when he reacts to seeing the body on the floor there a a picture of a bird f- falls from the wall and hits him on the foot that's right so I don't know. I can see subtext in the eyeball and then the drain and that's going and it's gone and who knows where and death and all that. What are we doing with the bird frame? It, maybe it, maybe the painting has some significant or the, the picture has some significance because I know from watching that documentary that I keep talking about, uh, I know the, the painting that's covering his little peephole is actually a painting that is about voyeurism as well. So there might be some sort of subtext in that as well. I yeah, don't know. He might have. I, I wouldn't doubt it. Like, I think he does things. He does everything with pure intentions. Yeah, so. absolutely. But I agree with you. This scene goes on too long. Norman walks in with a mop and a bucket and he's like, let me clean it up and move the body. Like everything that I was praising the first act of, of how it didn't seem to drag on now is where it's starting to drag. Like it's. Yeah, because. We just saw something really awesome. And now we and gotta, also. See the tedious cleanup. This is where it'd be nice to see it with a fresh pair of eyes. Cause knowing we know who Norman is, but I'd be, if you're that first time viewer in the sixties, like, do we know that Norman's mother at this point? No, I don't think, I don't think so. I don't think so either. However, when, when you watch it, you go, he's just too comfortable with a dead body. Yeah. I mean, what I, my impression he, is look, he gingerly pulls the shower curtain off to wrap it up. Right, right, right. Grabs it, walks it over, neatly folds it like, holy shit, he's done this before. He's definitely done it before. I mean, my impression is, and we kind of find out later that it's true that uh, mother has done this before. Mother has has killed some girls before. And did and the and the man that she was living with, right? Yeah, well, Norman killed both of them. Oh, that's right. That's right. But mother, you know, at, towards the mother. end, they ask, have you had any other missing girls around here? And right. the cops, the sheriff's like, yeah, we have. So he, this has happened before for sure. Right. So I don't know that, you know, if you're watching this the first time, I don't think you know that. I Norman don't think so. Either. There are so many twists in this movie. And 
we know them now, obviously, because this is an iconic film. But the, I think I was trying to watch it with with a pair of eyes of someone from 1960. And I'm thinking there's so much we don't know. And there's so many I don't want to say red herrings, but there's so many we get thrown so many different directions for the rest of the movie. And I'll kind yeah. of talk about that as we go on. So he takes the body, puts it in the car, in her car that she newly bought. <laughs> Brand new car. Brand new car. It's, it's a shame. With the 40 and, grand in the trunk. Yeah. With the, with the money. Yeah. Is the money in the trunk then? Or was yeah. it still in the newspaper? Uh, oh, he put it in there. He put it in there, yeah. Because it's still in the... She moves the money to the newspaper in her room. That's right. I forgot about that. So I don't know that the money's still in there. It is because the at the end of the movie, the 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 psychiatrist, what I think the cop asked, well, what what happened to the money? And he said the swamp got it. This was a crime of a passion, okay. not of not a profit. I just couldn't remember when he put it in there or when she did, but nonetheless, he he drives the car into like a, a swamp, literally like half a mile from the motel. It's yep. like the backyard of the motel. It really he, he is. Out of his way. <laughs> the the shot of him though, when it starts to sink, and then it stalls, like it doesn't sink anymore, and it shows a shot of him, and he's really nervous. Yeah. And then it cuts back to the car, and it finally starts to get submerged more, and then it cuts back to him, and he's like biting his fingernail and has a slight smile on his face. Yeah. This is where Anthony Perkins kills it again. You're like, man, the little subtleties of his movement. The little things, actions, man. The little things. So good. This whole time, Marion's sister is concerned. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's trying to figure out she hasn't reported to work. She hasn't been back. The boss's money's gone or the investor, the oil tycoon's money's gone. Everybody's like up in arms. And she goes to visit Sam. In uh, in wherever he's at in California, I don't I don't even know what town he's in, but she's in uh, it's a fictional town. Okay, well she goes to visit visit Sam and see if he's he's uh heard from her and and that's this is when we meet Arbogast and I I like Arbogast and actually she's also her sister's also hired Arbogast, which is a private investigator. Did she though? Because that was my understanding. He was a little antagonistic towards her. He told he he tells Norman Arbogast tells Norman that the the family hired him, but I'm not so sure because he's a little he's antagonistic. He's almost questioning her at times. So I don't I don't know who hired. Well, then how him. else did he get involved? I don't know. That's the thing. I I don't know. But I love how he's he's a PI and he keeps showing his credentials as if he's got a badge or something. Like that's what cops do. I I've never known. I don't know that world, but do private investigators carry a badge? Uh, you know, I thought, I think he's hired. No, he was hired from, um, not the family. He was hired from Mr. Lowry and the that's tycoon right. investor. And, and that's right. Cause they're trying that's to track right. down the 40 grand. That's right. Um, I like Arbogast though. And yeah, he's, he's I, pretty good. He, he's pretty good. He, I, I think William H. Macy in the remake does a pretty good job of playing him too. The cast on the remake is great. I think the cast, I, I, just I like the cast. The execution and, and the, the project itself was just a little weird. It, it's weird. You can't, what are you trying to do? Why are you trying to remake a film step by step, frame by frame? I don't understand it. I mean, and, if, and don't do it in color, for God's sake, if you're going to do it. I mean, Gus Van Sant is a great director. I know. I, I just, I don't understand the point of it. 
but the, I don't understand the point. And I also like, why do you want to do, why would you want to do that? Because you as a unique filmmaker, I, I'm just going to emulate this person and try to be, recreate what they've already created. I, I don't know how, how I like that too much. Yeah. I, I'm with you on that. No one's done that successfully. No one said, let me take a film that someone made and recreate it frame by frame. And it's even harder. I mean, not even harder, but not many people have remade a movie at all, even if it's not frame by frame and, and done it well. It's remakes are, in my opinion, few and far between are very good. The only person to have emulated a master and got away with it and become a master himself was Kobe Bryant. That's true. That's true. Emulated Jordan to a T and was at the pinnacle of, you know, I, we won't get into a debate about Kobe and Michael, but he is a master himself. Yeah. Oh, I mean, watching, watching him, if you just watch, if you didn't see the face, didn't see the uniform, just saw the, the movement and how they shot the ball and dribbled and all that stuff, you'd think it's Michael Jordan. Exactly. Yeah, they were. But Gus Van Sant tries to emulate Hitchcock and it doesn't work. No, it doesn't. And no knock on Van Sant because Van Sant's a good director. I just said Van Sant like some French accent. It's a very pretentious way of saying it. Well, you know, you start getting, it starts getting later yeah. in the podcast and I just started speaking like the candle bra from Beating the Beast. Uh, um. But but uh, so the the PI the private investigator is on the case, and his and her sister Marion's sister is also trying to track her down. She goes and meets Sam, and goes to uh, it, the, the the name of the city by the way is called Fairville, which is a fictional city uh, somewhere south of San Francisco ish. So they end up going and they all kind of convene at at uh, at um, Sam's hardware store. Uh, just coincidentally, they just convene and <laughs> everybody at the same time and they're trying to figure it out. So this leads uh, the PI, this leads uh, Mr. Uh, Arb Arbogast to uh, learn about the motel. And he ends up going around doing research at different places, trying to figure out where she could be. He ends up at the Bates Motel. Yeah. And, and this scene, I think, is great between he and Norman, because I think Arbogast plays it well, and I think, again, not to beat a dead horse here, but Anthony Perkins just plays this masterfully. Uh, it is a little, it is, I mean, obviously he's killed before, and I would imagine that he'd have to ask questions in the past as well, but we'll let that, we'll let that go a little bit. He, he just looks very nervous. Well, you brought it up, because I'm going to tackle it, because this okay. is where I took some liberty okay. of, of thinking... Oh, come on. Okay. 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 Well, I want to hear. Well, I think you're alluding to the same thing that I was thinking of, which is once Arbogast gets to the motel, he starts interrogating um, Norman. Yeah. Right? He's pretty aggressive with it too. Okay. But he's already divulged that he's not a cop. Don't, don't even talk to him, man. Exactly. Why don't the talk fuck to are him. you talking to right. him, Norman? Well, and, and this is why I, I do think that Arbogast... I'm defending a killer now. Yeah, you are. Uh, I, I think that Arbogast played this very well. And the actor who played Arbogast, I'm sorry, and I don't have that in front of me, but I thought he played this very well because Martin he... Balsam. Because the, this interaction, this little cat and mouse game they're playing, 
I think goes over very well because at first he's kind of cheerful and happy and he's not really pushing Norman, but he kind of, he kind of is at the same time. And I, I think he knows the kind of person he's dealing with. Maybe not knows that he killed her and then he's a crazy person, but he knows that he's not getting the full story. And I think that if he pushed him too hard, Norman would climb up and, and which he does eventually. So I think he plays it very well, and he kind of gradually starts pushing him a little bit more and more. Yeah, I think the scene works. I just hated that Norman didn't have the smarts enough to go, oh, this guy's a PI. I'm not going to answer a damn question. Well, and that's, again, I think this plays into, into his character because later on we'll find out uh, that he still sleeps in his childhood room, still has all his childhood toys. He's still a, a child in his brain, I think. I don't think he has... Uh, at least his personality, Norman's personality doesn't have the smarts for this kind of thing. He's out of his element. I also think that Arbogast figures out that Nor something's wrong with Norman. You want to know why? Why? You want to know why? Yeah. Cause he's eating candy corn. <laughs> is that what he's eating? Why the hell is he eating candy corn? I don't know anyone who likes candy corn. We had, I'm going to pull the We've talked about this. We, yeah, we've talked about this. I was going to say, I'm going to do yeah. the recall yeah, from Murder right. Party. That's right. From Murder Party. We both concurred that candy corn is possibly the worst type of it's candy ever. It's disgusting. There's nothing good about it. That's right. We talked about that. I didn't notice he was eating candy corn. I thought it was sunflower seeds or something. He says, it uh, when Arbogast arrives, he says, would you like a candy? And he's eating candy corn. Oh, God. And Arbogast dude. says, no. I and mean, then I went, okay, Arbogast is going to outwit him every time now because he didn't <laughs> take the candy corn. <laughs> you know, I, I can deal with the lady killing. I cannot deal with the candy corn eating. That's <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> That's disgusting. I mean, what I do like about it in the sense is that it's, it, he's, the, he's using it as this device. You know, as he's eating it, you watch that scene when he's going back and forth with Arbogast. That candy corn... It's this weird, it sounds funny, but sometimes when people eat on camera, there's like a weird confidence to the eating. I always right. think of Brad Pitt. He's always eating. Always, always. And, and it's always, but it always works. It right. makes him feel like more, I don't know how to say this other than more masculine, more confident in whatever right. it is he's doing. And Norman has a little bit of that and eventually starts kind of slowing down his consumption as he starts getting outwitted by Arbogast. That's cool. I, I you know what? I, I didn't notice that. I, I kind of noticed a little bit the chewing seemed to be a little bit more nervous as the conversation went on, but it slows down yeah. a little and the confidence of the chew, like it sounds really <laughs> picky, but it's, well, true. it's cool. I mean, you see that with actors sometimes. And I mean, you mentioned Brad Pitt, but you see this where there's, there's, I don't want to call it a crutch because that's got a negative connotation, but you see some little thing that they hold on to that, that helps them ex like bring out the character. Yeah, absolutely. Using either some kind of prop or some kind of right. atmospheric thing around in the environment. It's cool. I like that kind of stuff. It, it also just makes it feel uh, natural. But Arbogast, he, Norman basically invites him like he, he's already put his foot in his mouth. Norman has. So Arbogast is already clued in like, OK, something's going on. Right. And then Norman's like, well, just come follow me. You can you, you can take a look in the rooms and uh, take a look around and you can help me clean the, <laughs> the bed. Help me change the beds. The linen. Oh, right. No, thanks. That's OK. Arbogast wants to, he learns about Norman's mom and he wants to basically uh, also interview the mom. He's very suspicious of the mother. And this is where Norman clams up too. This is the point where he draws the line. 
I mean, he he's fine putting his foot in his mouth. He's fine contradicting himself. He's fine almost incriminating himself. But when it comes to his mother, you don't fuck with his mother. You don't, and that's you where don't he's mess shutting, around. Yeah, that's when he's shutting it down. He's like, and then he basically tells Arbogast to, to get the hell off the property. Right, right. But Arb- this has created the suspicion. Arbogast leaves, but he's suspicious. He calls Marion's sister and says, hey, I'm at this Bates Motel. I'll be down to meet you where you're at at the hardware store, wherever it was with Sam, in an hour or less. But first, I want to go back to see if I can talk to this mother in the house. I hated that, by the way. Why? You hated that, they, that he called them or that he went back? I too. I, I'm trying. Why would you go back that exact night? I don't know. I, I unless he's trying to sneak in. I don't know. The, you know because what? there are a lot of a lot of points in this movie where I think they could have got to it quicker. Like the, it's just a, it's just redundant to to do that. As good as the actors are in this scene. Um, Norman Bates and Arb- Arbogast, they're great at, they do great. It also, the scene drags a little too long. We could have got to the, to the hit a little bit for closer. Sure, for sure. Or a little sooner. He goes back, starts snooping around in the house. <laughs> PIs don't need a warrant, man. They can do whatever they want. <laughs> I mean, he's a ballsy PI. He is. I'll give him that. Starts hope- snooping around. And here we have this scene where once again we get an introduction to mother and we get kill number two. And I, I do want to say, no, wait, no, it comes later. Never mind. I was talking, I was going to talk about some camera movement. It comes later. Yeah, this, this, this kill does not hold up. This is one yeah. of the most botched things I've ever seen, ever. We'll be a little forgiving because it's 60 years old. I, 60 years old. I can understand. I'm I not guess. saying I agree. It, it doesn't hold up. You're absolutely it, right. I, I mean, I guess it's it's the fall down. This First of all, the stab is is ridiculous because mother stabs him in the chest and then it cuts away and his face is cut. It cuts to him and his face is cut, which doesn't make any sense. First of all, I mean, I, I would think being Hitchcock, you would think that you would have that planned out a little bit better. Yeah, I mean, I would have rather taken a stuntman fall down the stairs. Absolutely. Than, than this weird... It's almost like, what was it? Was it Vertigo with the Statue of Liberty? Or was yeah. it North by Northwest? I can't remember. But it's, yeah. it's, it's almost like he just loved doing that, that shot so much that let's just put it in a house. Like, it's not the same thing. You can't do it. And it's not uncommon for filmmakers to get into a, a particular uh, unique stamp of their own and stick to that process. <laughs> but it looks so bad. Even if it doesn't it work. so bad. And this is one thing in the remake where they should have actually had a stuntman fall down the stairs because William H. Macy recreating the sh- shot is just, it's, it looks even worse in color. Why would you do that? I, I don't. Yeah, I don't get Gus it. Gus von Sant. <laughs> Gus von Sant. <laughs> so, uh, but Arbogast doesn't stick around really too long. He gets taken out by mother. Uh, I did like after the stab across the face. The The phantom stab across the face. The phantom stab. I did like the the final kill, which was just 
the mother over the top of him with the knife yes. and then kind of a cut to black with some sound design. Yes. I thought that worked well, but leading up to it, I agree. It's a little dated and doesn't quite hold up. It's probably the one piece in the picture that dates it. I yeah. think you could almost make, I mean, a few of those little rear projection shots, but you could, this, this still really kind of, it could pass today with the exception of just a couple shots. Yeah, I think and so. this is definitely one of them. Some of the exterior shots, it's like it's day and then it's night all of a sudden and then it's day again. And I know, I understand a lot of that is shooting night for day probably would be my guess. But I mean, other than that, I, I think, yeah, I think you, it, it is passable. A lot of the camera movements, I think, I'm surprised that they were able to get some of these in 1960. Yeah, he he's he's a real he he's a real magician with the movement. I like a lot of his movement. It's all pretty methodical. Yeah. Arbogast is dead. We keep losing good characters. We do. This is one thing I I gotta applaud Hitchcock for, which is like this is why nobody wanted a piece of the film or wanted to like finance it or be part of it, because he kept killing off good characters that people could root for. Well, not only that, but Janet Lee was an A-list celebrity at this point. And yeah, she gets absolutely. killed out halfway through the film. And she's the main character. I mean, it's If you're a studio and something like this has never been done, of course you're going to be scared of it. Yeah, I mean, it, that's exactly it. It's unprecedented. So you're not familiar with the concept of killing off your characters. Right. Which now is, more, of course, more common. It's not uncommon to see someone killed off that we like immediately. Right. It happens. <laughs> almost every time yeah. exactly <laughs> hitchcock definitely is a trendsetter in that regard um so uh, arbogast is dead mother gets killed number two and in the meantime we have sam and uh, marion's sister uh really concerned that arbogast hasn't returned in the hour or less that he that he committed to and so they wake up the local sheriff and the sheriff actually has a pretty good theory. And I think if you're if you're an audience in 1960, I think maybe you go with this. And his theory is that Arbogast set, tried to send them off the trail so he could go uh, run away with the money as well. So he could go yeah. find Marion and run away. And here is where we get our first twist. And that is when the sheriff divulge, divulges that Norma Bates... Norman's mother, I think, I think her name's Norma, has been dead for 10 years. So now you're thinking, well, who the hell is killing these people? Well, the sheriff even says that in a line. He's like, if that's uh, someone else, then who the hell's buried in the cemetery? Exactly. So now, now it really becomes a mystery, and people are, I think, guessing at this point. Because I, don't, I still don't think they think it's Norman. I think they think at this point that Norman is super controlled by his mother. Uh, she's super verbally abusive to him. Uh, but I don't think that they're thinking it's him. No, I don't, I don't think they think it's him either. And, um, this, this gets some suspicions with, um, Sam and, and the sister and they decide that they won't be satisfied until they go out to the Bates motel and see all this for themselves. So they make the drive. They start, they get to the Bates motel and this is some interesting interaction. I feel like Sam's really forceful yeah. <laughs> on Norman. He's, a, he's kind of a, he's kind of like a traditional douchebag, good looking guy that totally. like, tries to bully the, 
you know, that's what it felt he, like. He'd to be me. a dude, bro, if he was around today. He'd totally that's be a right. dude, bro. And that's right. And uh, Norman's got to be thinking, what the hell is going on here? These people keep showing up at my hotel, and he'll go weeks without seeing anybody. Yeah, but he he, he like he doesn't though, does he? Well, I mean, he, he know he knows what they're after, obviously. But still, it's got to be, you know, weeks of non-action where you have enough time to stuff all these birds, and now all of a sudden you're dealing with people every every second. And also say like some the his approach is a little different. He's his hands are when he meets these two and they get to the motel and he comes running down from the house. His hands are in his pockets and he's like, uh huh. He's not as forthright as he was with the others that can, or at least with um, Janet Lee's character with no, Mary. No, not until they they say they want a room. Then he kind of skips in there. It's just Anthony. He's just he plays the. Like his, there's still a, to his physical movement, there's still kind of a closed off positioning to how yeah. he gets to the office. Right, right. Again, it's just, that's Perkins just nailing his role. He's, yeah. Um, and this is where Sam's a little bit of a douchebag, but understandably so. He's like, I don't know any motel that doesn't take money if there's no bags. There's no bags to check. He just starts being a dick. <laughs> Such an asshole. <laughs> Such an asshole. It's like, um, <laughs> And so they get a room and their whole plan is to, to basically get a room and then find a way to basically peruse or look through the entire motel for any clues that they might have on Mary. And they, they find, I think, uh, Marion's sister, what is her name? I can't remember off the top of my head. I'll have to look it up, but she finds Lila. Yeah. Lila. She finds part of, Marion's note in the toilet and I guess she just grabs it out of the toilet which is pretty disgusting and but, all the ink is still visible not, even yeah, with the water stain not smeared at and all it in says 40,000 minus 700 we talked about before how convenient <laughs> uh, is it let's talk about the the authenticity of that if a if a if a penciled or penned note of paper was put into a toilet and sat for two or three days or a week a week at least yeah could you, was it, is it legible? Well, no, there's no way. And are you going to dig it out of the toilet? I mean, how not bad if it's, how bad if you, it's, I saw the devil toilet. <laughs> I'm not sure. Two I, references in one podcast. <laughs> I think two references to poop toilet. I oh think we've God. talked more about toilets in this podcast. Than oh, we have, episodes. we have seriously. It's so gross. Uh, she finds the note. That's the plot point. We'll yeah. forgive it. It's a plot point. It's fine. They, uh, yeah, they, they find evidence that she was there. They already knew she was there, though. That's the thing I don't quite understand. And then so uh, Sam. Yeah, <laughs> it's been pretty evident. Yeah, I mean, they know that. Uh, and then so Sam says, I'm going to go distract him. You go look in the house, try and talk to to the mother. Sam bullies him some more. <laughs> just, just going, I mean, going at him hard now. And now he's not even pulling any punches. Um, Lila goes up into the house, tries to find, uh, Norman's mother who he has moved into the fruit cellar. Um, I did want to talk about the, the, the shot where he moves her into the fruit cellar. I thought was done really well. This is the one I keep, when I keep talking about, I'm, I'm surprised that they were able to pull these kind of things off in 1960. This is the one because it kind of, the camera floats up the stairs as, and Norman walks in, in his mother's room. And you hear the conversation and how he's saying, I'm going to have to move you to the fruit cellar because people are going to come looking. But the camera keeps, it's one shot and it kind of keeps moving towards the door and then goes up and turns into a bird's eye view all in one motion. And then you see Norman 
carrying his mother down the stairs. I just thought for today, I think that's a cool shot. But even for back then, I think it's especially cool. It is a cool technical shot. It's also at this point, if you're watching this, you think mother's just sickly ill. You don't know that mother's uh, a carcass. Yeah, I mean, it's an elderly woman's voice we keep hearing. Um, he's mentioned how she's an invalid and she can't get up. Uh, so, yeah, but but the thing is, how's she killing all these people then? Because she ser- her legs seem to work just fine when she's murdering people. So <laughs> I, I just I think it's part of the mystery. I, I think I think there's so much going on and the, the, the audience is really trying to figure it out. Next and, on Breaking Hitchcock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And it really builds. And then here's one more. One Alan more. brings the biggest secret of all. Mother's <laughs> legs don't work. <laughs> or do they? It's like uh, it's like in the it's big. A good Le- point though. It's, it's like in the point. Big Lebowski when when Walter tries to pick up uh, the the elder Lebowski. He's like this this guy walks. <laughs> Guarantee this guy walks. Um, <laughs> uh, but then uh, when when okay anyway, it's all building to this. All the all the questions are going to be answered right now because Lila goes in there. She goes down to the fruit cellar. She sees the back of Mrs. Bates's head, and she tries to talk to her. And she turns the chair around, and it's that it's that very cliched now shot. The slow turn of the chair to reveal that Mrs. Bates is is a rotting corpse. Yeah. And it's just her her skeleton, pretty much. It's preserved as well as possible. She screams and for some reason hits a light. Uh, she just puts her, she flails her arms. It's just and, one arm, though. That's the thing. It's so weird. It's so unnatural. Yeah, it is one arm. Swings back, <laughs> hits the light. The light starts swinging. Right, right. It's actually, I love it. I love it, 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 it plays well. I'm just being, I'm just being an ass. But then. And does this, does this, allu- this feels like Blair Witch copied if you look at the end shots of Blair Witch in the cellar of that house mm-hmm. in the Blair Witch Project, there's some nuance there, like a person in the corner in a cylinder bricked basement. That's a good point. The light crashing or the, you know, like. That's a good point. Some, there's some things there I think they pulled from this movie. There's definitely a lot of stylistic similarities for sure. I It could be. But then we get the big reveal and Norman walks in and, and again, Anthony Perkins just has the the most crazy look on his face. He's never smiled bigger the entire movie than right. when he walks in that door with a dress and a wig on and he's got the biggest grin on his face. Couldn't be happier and to be about to be murder happier her. and creepier at the same time. Exactly. And it's it's and he's got the knife and uh following him is is Loomis who he had earlier hit over the head. Uh Loomis comes in, wrestles the knife from him and then it, we we fade out of out of the house, and then we get well, finally. Let's, get- let's talk quickly about the Loomis comes in first off. Lila reacts. I love the reaction of her seeing mother, and then also love the reaction of her seeing Norman. Like, oh no, it's very the cutting back and forth, the medium close ups of Lila, her reaction and facial expression. It was all great. When Loomis follows Norman in and grabs him from behind, first off, the wrestle to the ground or the the. The, the tussle between them is really bad. Yeah, it's bad. A lot of but the action in this movie is pretty bad. The one thing I loved, even though it's a bit off, is not only does the wig fall off, but the dress somehow comes off too. That's true. And <laughs> it's this kind of metaphorical concept of like, 
mother transforming into Norman and Norman transforming into mother. And I just love how that plays out, even though technically it's a little clunky. Yeah. Yeah. I no, I agree. And I think it's, it's done really well. And it's, it's it, again, I'm trying to put myself in the, in the, shoes of an audience seeing this for the first time oh you're horrified i I don't even know and especially back then when this kind of stuff was very taboo you know and and i don't know i just don't know what they're thinking at this point i think you're horrified i I think you are i think you're right i think there's no other option at this point and then we fade away and we get kind of the wrap-up exposition the epilogue if you will and kind of the explanation we have a, a psychiatrist explaining the multiple personality thing and how mother made all the kills and, and kind of wrapping up everything in a nice little bow. So tell me about the, this, this epilogue it's, it's pretty long considering, but does this need to be there in that? Can it be, can it be more brief? I think I think there's a lot that could be more brief in this movie. I think so. I mean, I don't think you need all that. I think again, it's hard. To, is, it's hard to see it with fresh eyes because we we know the story so well. But I think they've explained everything up to this point. Because the essentially it leads up to this uh, psychotherapist or this person that what are they called? What's the word I'm searching for? I psychiatrist. Um, I guess, yeah, it's just a psychiatrist breaking down what it is. And I got to ask, what is it that Norman has? I think it's it's multiple personality. Just multiple personality That'd be my guess. Yeah, and I can't remember. There's an actual term for it nowadays, but I can't remember what it is. We'll go with that one. But And that's what it is. And then this just goes on, and I could actually fast forward a little bit towards the end. I do love the, the ending shot, though, of Norman. So good. Uh, it's and just, I assume you're going to talk about the dissolve too. I, I just love the last shot that kind of it's him looking down and then he looks up and the contact of his eyes and he gets this slight grin on his face. Once again, just creepy. And then it dissolves into the car, Marion's car being but pulled out of in the, the dissolve though. You see a glimpse of mother's corpse, like of her of her skeleton face. And it's, it's just a, it's just a hint of it. It's like a triple imposition. Yes. And it's so just, there's the car, Norman, and mother's. It's really kind of her teeth. Yeah. And and you could see her eye sockets too. It's 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 just a hint of it. It's not it's so subtle, but it's fantastic. It's, oh, I love it. Because it would have been so easy to go over the top with that or just not do it at all. But it's just that little, little bit just makes it, oh, man, it gives you the creeps. And I actually, but, but Perkins's look again here and his subtle smile, so good. And I think it just alludes once again to the fact how great he does to play this character. It's a great ending to, to the movie. I just think we could have bypassed the psychiatrist for about two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Him just pacing the room. <laughs> yeah. And ranting, Although his basically. performance is good, and I like it bits is. of his monologue where he's talking about, he's basically, here's what happened, and here's what this is. I think in six in the 1960s, you're not looking at it with 2020 vision, for sure, pun intended. Which is like now we understand the elements of mental health a little bit more strongly than they did in the 1960s. Yeah, for sure, they probably needed that that definition and that explanation. For sure. 
So we're getting close. So there we are, uh, Alan. I'm sure we missed a few points, but overall, I liked where we covered the the film. Um, give me a little bit of your summation and your rating on this bad boy. Uh, so real quick, I I I've done most of the trivia that I was gonna do, but uh, there are there's just like one or two things I really want to just little trivia things real quick. First Jump of all, obviously it. this is pretty famous. Most people probably know this. Uh, this could have been shot in color, but Hitchcock chose to shoot it in black and white uh, because of the blood. And he didn't use, he used chocolate syrup for the blood. And I think that's pretty well known, but I still think it's a pretty cool. Uh, it just shows you how creative you can be. And also this is, this is fun. On the set, Hitchcock was trying to find the perfect skeleton, the perfect corpse uh, for the end. And so he would hide, he was in to get the best reaction out of Vera Miles, who played Lila Crane. Uh, so he would hide skeletons all over the set. And she would just go into her dressing room and there's a skeleton and she'd scream. Or she'd go into her car and there's a skeleton waiting for her and she'd scream. And this is the one that made her scream the loudest. And so that's why he went with that one. I thought that was a pretty cool thing. So those I are my two, that. my two little pieces of trivia there. Uh, besides everything else I've talked about. Uh, I, I, love, I love this movie. It's, it is a, again, we talked about whether or not it's a horror movie. I think, I think it is. I think it can be, can be classified as that. I, I think the best horror has mystery to it. And I think the twists and turns are really fun. Again, I'd love to go back and see this with fresh eyes as someone in 1960. But uh, overall, it's still fun. I get excited when I hear that annoyingly beautiful music. It, it, it amps me up a lot of it holds up and I'm surprised. And I did, I wasn't nearly as bored as I thought I'd be because trying to watch some of his other movies are is a little boring, but uh, this one I think still, still holds up. I'm overall, I'm going to go. Um, oh, and I had a perfect one for this too. I'm going to go 7.7. Oh, I had a good one. I can't remember. Let's say 7.7 <laughs> stuffed birds. Nice. I like that one. That was maybe the one I was going to go with. Was it? Ah, I stole so it. So now as I talk through my summary You're going to have to come rating, up with one. i got to come up with one. Well, let's go into IMDb quickly. IMDb and, um, and uh, uh, Rotten Tomatoes. So IMDb is at 8.5. Pretty okay. high. Yeah, that, yeah, that makes, I'd say that's about right where I would expect it to be. Rotten Tomatoes, 96% on the critic, 95% from the audience. Wow. That's crazy. Usually neither of them are that close together. Especially for an old movie, too. Out of 240,000 ratings and 99 critic reviews. So that's pretty damn good. Wow. Um, a couple pieces of trivia that I found interesting. Uh this was one that, that, that I thought, thought was kind of funny. <laughs> Cast and crew began work on the first day and they had to raise their right hands and promise not to divulge one word of the story. He was very so, obsessed with, with, the, with the twist not getting out. And he withheld the ending part of the script until they absolutely, all everyone needed to know it to shoot it. I thought that was yeah. that's very that sounds very Hitchcockian. Nowadays that'd be leaked. I mean, if you make that big of a deal of keeping something, uh, keeping a lid on something, I think it's going to get leaked. AKA Tarantino, yeah, eight. yeah, exactly. Or once upon a, yeah. 
Um, Walt Disney refused to allow Alfred Hitchcock to film at Disneyland in the early 1960s because Hitchcock had made that disgusting movie, Psycho. <laughs> and this leads me to, and we're laughing at it, right? But it does lead me quickly to a little bit of just kind of the controversy that it, that it led to culturally. There was a lot of controversy. Um, people didn't, they liked it, but a lot of people didn't. Um, they had, you know, there, there was alleged things about the sexual orientation of Norman. There was all these things that just, had the, like you mentioned, the flushing of the toilet, but which is, sounds so trivial. It's so stupid. Um, <laughs> uh, just a lot of kind of cultural zeitgeist controversy around the film. Um, so imagine living in 1916, having to kind of go through it. But I think that quote from Walt Disney kind of sums it up, makes it kind of funny. Um, and then lastly, I'll do one more, um, which I find kind of cool because the quote, the, the musical score by Bernard Herrmann so good. When, when Hitchcock heard the score, he literally doubled his salary. Whew. I mean, Hitchcock was not a guy, it was not a generous guy to his cast and crew either. He was pretty, no, he, he was wasn't, pretty but he, he said, and this is why this will sum up Hitchcock's demeanor and who he was as a person, because later he said, Hitchcock, he said, 33% of the effect of Psycho was due to the music. I would say that's pretty accurate. I do too, but I think it's funny that he was so specific. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's you could talk. just say a great part of the film was due to the music. Right, or right. 33%. Or even just say a third, you know, like he's got to like give just, it a percentage. I think that kind of sums up his, his demeanor and his personality. So uh, this is a great film. I mean, once like not to, not to sound like a broken record. However, I will say that all those things that we talked about, I think this film deservedly or ha it deserves the kind of accolades that it gets because it's really well put together. And so uh, I enjoy the film. I think it's one that um, anybody who likes that mystery thrillers, even kind of serial killer, killer, murder, uh, homicidal kind of vibe that you get, I think you'll like this movie um, in a lighter take, especially now looking at it through the lens of uh, 2020 and looking back on it 60 years. I mean, it's, it, it's, a, it's still really good, but it's, of course, a lot more lighthearted in a sense than what you would see in today's world. Um, but that doesn't make it any less good. And so I really think it holds its weight. And I really uh, enjoy the thought process that it makes me think about. We mentioned some of those scenes that kind of get deep. I love when movies do that. The other thing is, Alan, as you know, is this sucker rewatchable? Can I see this again? And I've seen it a few times already, of course. And I definitely could watch it again, right? So this is definitely a rewatchable. So for Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 Psycho, I'm going to come in with a score of, man, I, had, I wish I would have thought about a better. I know. I was thinking about it too. And I, I had another one and I can't remember what it was. I will say uh, I'm actually going to come in with an 8.1. Ooh, nice. And it's a high score. Part of that's draw. I'm giving some uh, 
advantage points because I do enjoy Hitchcock and culturally there's that, that kind of uh, reverence that you have for uh, filmmakers that kind of find their, their way into culture. So I like that part of it. And nostalgically, I like the TV series and some of his other movies that he's done, um, particularly Rear Window. So 8.1, and I will say 8.1 female wigs. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's a good one. I like that. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll go with the mother wig. Yeah. I do want to, I just, yeah. Jump and in. I don't think I have to remind anybody about this, but just the significance of Hitchcock himself, he spanned from the silent era until the Spielberg era. Like that's a long time. And he was consistently making films. I mean, he was, he was Spielberg's hero. In fact, when he wanted to meet, Spielberg or when when Spielberg wanted to meet Hitchcock I think his agent told him or something and he said is that the boy who did the fish movie you know talking about Jaws and it's just obviously very Hitchcock uh humor there but it's just it's just it's crazy to think how long he was active making films it's a and he died in 1981 family plot was his last film in 1976 but his first one um 1925 he started a movie in 1922 that he didn't finish, but 1925 to 1976. That is a long time, especially when you think of the innovations that came along in film. So I don't, I know I don't, anyone who's listening to this, I don't have to remind them of, of the significance, but that's just, he was the master. He, he was just the master. And a lot of what he did didn't hold up, but he was trying new things and he was, he was pushing the, consistently pushing boundaries. That's, I think, what I love. One of the things I love most about him. You know, when we did The Shining, we talked about Kubrick for almost three hours. You'll notice here that we're pushing over two hours on this one. So anytime we bring up those cinematic icons, it tends to lend itself to a long, right. well, a lengthy podcast for these types of reasons. It, exactly. And again, Get, th this movie, I, you can't separate the movie from the director in this case. And I, I know that's the case in a lot of the films we talk about, but I think this one is, it's so ingrained. Like Hitchcock is so ingrained in this film. It's, it's, it, you just can't separate it. Absolutely. One last suggestion. Uh, if, and I know I haven't seen all of his film. I mean, he's got tons of, of films, but of those that you have seen, give one suggestion outside of Psycho for people to go watch, uh, to learn more and, and, and like watch more Hitchcock portfolio. Uh, you mentioned rope or, or uh, uh, sorry, rear window. I definitely like that one, but I am going to say, I, and I kind of spoil it that rope. If you haven't seen rope, it's different. It's more like a stage play. It's all supposed to have been done in one take. It obviously wasn't. You can see kind of where they kind of tried to hide the cuts, but it, it is just, if you're trying to get the flavor of how diverse he can be, it's very suspenseful. It's, it's going to be slower though, because it's definitely, it's supposed to be one shot. It's like I say, more like a stage play. But it's just done very, very well. And I think the acting's done very well. And um, it, it just, go, go watch that one. I would recommend that one. If you're trying to get a flavor for everything he can do, I would check that out. Yeah, that's a good movie. And you get, you get uh, James Stewart. So you get a classic acting icon. Yeah, and he's very, very James Stewart in that one too. My, I said Rear Window, but I would also suggest to go watch Dial M for Murder. I really like yeah, that movie. That's a good one. Um, just fun, put together, very Hitchcockian. So that's another one. So this is uh, 
the Tame Aperture podcast. You can check us out at tameaperture.com. And this is our review of 1960s Psycho by Alfred Hitchcock. Alan, thanks for uh, bearing with me on this one, getting it through it with, yeah, uh, after two hours of, uh, of talk. <laughs> when I get really crazy about a movie, I could go on and on. So pleasure was all mine. I think we could we could probably continue. But for the sake of our listeners, we'll stop. <laughs> Smart man. <laughs> all right, everybody, go check us out, TameAperture.com, and uh, look for suggestions. Give us suggestions, I should say, on uh, episodes, forthcoming episodes. Also, look at our back portfolio and listen in. And we'll, uh, until next time, we'll see you guys. Thanks. The Tame Aperture Podcast is produced by Dutch Angle Pictures in association with Studio B Productions. Listen, watch, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and YouTube.